Welcome. I am your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMALOTN. This week, we're going over UFC Vegas 30, headlined by Cyril Gunn and Alexander Volkov, a very intriguing heavyweight scrap we have here between a proven heavyweight and an up-and-coming 8-0 heavyweight between Siragan and Volkov. Like I said, a couple other interesting fights sprinkled on throughout the card. I just want to tee it up to Cody. Um, is there a specific fight that you're looking forward to most on this card? There's one that really stands out to me, and I'd be surprised if the, it's not the one that you say right off the bat. But uh, what, what's the fight that intrigues you most on this weekend's card? The fight that intrigues me on the entire card, I'd say... I, I, I don't know. I guess the one that jumps right away for me is Brownie Barcellos. He's my guy. Always stuck with him. Always entertaining. Probably his biggest fan currently going. So for me, any card that features Barcellos is going to be a good one. But again, as a super fan, you got the return of Yancy Medeiros guy. Been there, done that. You know, pretty credible. Uh, Pracnia versus Ike Villanueva almost <laughs> certainly is going to be violent, right? So how could you not get down for that? Orly Alves is always fun and exciting for five minutes. Either he finishes you at Desmond. Rachmanov, 13-0, 100% finish ratio. Daniel Pineda, the 27 wins, 100% finish ratio. Hanato Moicano, uh, when he doesn't get chin-checked really early in fights, always in for an entertaining fight. Dalby, a sober Nick Dalby, looks in great shape. Like, yeah, as a hardcore fight fan, there's a lot of spots that you can point out of what you like. But as far as last week's card go, uh, brother, I'm so glad we do a prop show because like, quite literally the only thing that remotely saved me. From a picks perspective, not necessarily good, but a lot of these times you got to fight don't got the greatest lean, but we can attack it from a prop perspective and turn that profitable. So last week, at least we got the Nega Marianu fight. Where, was I off on that? Sure. But were we right on the fight goes the distance? Yeah, cash that one for 140, and then we got Parisian versus Roque Martinez. Again, people don't like the decision, but the fight goes the distance. Cash that for 130, and then Kanako Murata did not win a decision, so I can't quite get the three out of three. Two out of three ain't bad. I know that's what they always say, but like, I want to crush a perfect slate, uh, make it a good one, so happy to have another chance to get back at it. Well, first and foremost, you definitely nailed the fight that I'm looking forward to most as well. Barcelos and Value should be a great fight between two guys that are on the rise as well. But yeah, I was going to touch on that card too. I did horrible in terms of predictions. I went three out of 12 on calling correct uh, sides that night. But in terms of props, we did get saved a little bit. Like you said, the two that you brought up and the only one that I ended up hitting was the one that I felt, you know, a lot of people were overlooking was the Spivak via decision at plus 600. Yeah. Happy, happy yeah, that right, one man. came through because that was my only bright moment of last week because there's an absolute shit show on the betting front for my side. But, uh, you know, once I look back at my uh, my slips and all that, I'm happy to, oh, plus 600 Spivak decision. At least we had that. So it's a little bit of a, a moral victory there. But we are here breaking down UFC Vegas 30 for you guys, propping you up as we always say. So we're just going to start off right off uh, at the bottom here, a fight that you just talked about and a fight that was actually scheduled for last month between Yancy Medeiros and Demir Hadzvich. In terms of uh, odds, we got minus 145 for Hadzvich and plus 125 for Medeiros. Last time these guys were scheduled, I believe it was a closer to a pick -em. Uh We did Demi have Demir Hadzvich excuse me, around minus 120-ish uh, the first time they were matched up. And for some reason now, seems to be a little bit more love on Hadzvich. Maybe that's just, you know, the public saying, okay, some of the sharps were on Hadzvich, so I'm actually going to put money on him this time around. And I feel like it's pretty much going to come down to whether Yancy Medeiros is successful in terms of dragging this fight to the ground or not. And if he can't, then this is going to be a stand-up battle. And if it's a stand-up battle, I'm going to have to go with the Hadzvich side of things as I do believe that he has the more power in his hands, the better technical striking, the better combinations. Whereas Yancy Medeiros, it seems at times, sometimes his cardio seems to drop off. It also seems at times that he just doesn't throw the 
most into his strikes. Like the best performance he's definitely ever had was this fight against Alex Cowboy Oliveira, which was on the tail end of his three-fight winning streak, which actually led him to a main event slot against Cowboy Cerrone, which he ended up losing. But in that fight against Cowboy Cerrone, he took, uh, or sorry, Cowboy Oliveira, he took an absolute shit kicking until Cowboy Oliveira started to slow down. It seemed like Cowboy Oliveira actually over, uh, even broke his nose, which in my opinion, you know, really hindered his cardio for that fight. And Yancey Medeiros was able to take over late. And I think he finished in, uh, near the ending of that fight as well. So that's the best performance. But it's crazy to me that Yancey Medeiros has been inside the UFC as long as he has. And he's only 33 years old. Like, I thought he was one of those guys that was in the 36, 37, 38 range. But uh, that's not the case here. Regardless, I do think that this remains a striking battle. I think we're going to see a ton of violence. And I do think a couple of spots to aim at this fight from would be the under 2.5 at plus 110. But I'm actually going to be going with the hats of each side of things. And I think it's going to be hats of each that ends up winning by KO. And that line currently sits at plus 270. How are you feeling about this one? Are you going to bring in that over love into this and, uh, you know, uh, trend away from my violence bet? Or how do you feel about this one? Yeah, I don't really like this fight from a perspective. In terms of the money line, I think I would go with that slight play on Yancey Medeiros just because I want the plus money. There's not a ton that I love about Demir Hadzivic. We know that he's a big, powerful guy. He throws big, powerful strikes. But one, he doesn't have a ton of volume. Two, the takedown defense is always going to be a an issue for him. But as a favorite, like it's too much of this one and done. Hopefully he catches the knockout. When you realistically look at his run inside the UFC... Uh, he's got a four and three record, right? Those wins, Marcin held, who's up two rounds and then runs himself face first into a knee with an Imanari roll. But Marcin held no longer with the promotion. Nick Hine, a split decision victory over Nick Hine is a judo black belt. Never even attempted one single takedown in that fight, and yet he wins a pretty closely contested decision over him. It shouldn't have been a split; he should have won unanimous. But all the same, like it's still a close fight. And Nick Hine retires immediately afterwards, no longer with the promotion. And then Polo Reyes, who, when you fight Polo Reyes, this tends to happen where you're going to knock him out and add to the highlight reel. Polo Reyes, no longer with the promotion. So, at what point are we? Well, why do we love Demir Hadzivic? Like, what is exactly done? He blows putzes out of the water. Okay, that's fair. And he does it in spectacular fashion. Don't get me wrong. And Martin Hell's not a putz, but still, he was losing that fight. Yeah. So, what was, where's the confidence come from exactly? And you talk about Yancey Medeiros, it's like, oh, geez, you know, he didn't look great against Cowboy Cerrone. It's like, shit, it's Cerrone. You know, you're right. He didn't look good against Gregor Gillespie either, right? And and the Cowboy Oliver, like, these are all significantly tougher fights that Yancey's fought. Now, Yancey's a big boy, you know, only comes in about 5'10", 75-inch reach, but fought as high as a middleweight back in the strike force days. You know, has fought in the UFC at 175 and 155 pounds. It seems like he's best suited at 55. The layoff, I think, you know, allows him to heal some of these injuries, freshen up, get his body back in tune, and then go out there and put on a good performance. Now, when you look at the numbers, I mean, at his best, he throws a lot more volume than Mir Hadzivic. And so I, I hate just looking at like the pure stat number, but Yancey Medeiros over his career has averaged a little over four strikes per minute, whereas you have uh, uh, the other side of things with Hadzivic, you know, he's under three. When you look at Yancey's best performances, he uses that reach, he stays to the outside, and he peppers these guys. That 75-inch reach represents a five-inch reach advantage over Hadzivic. So I know it's the apex, and I know it's a little small of a ring it's going to be harder to matador from the outside but if he's got the reach and he's got the volume he's fought the better competition he is i guess a little bit chinny you know he may have some durability issues but again world-class guys are able to bring that out of him as far as a dog play it just seems like yeah why not so again the over under man if adzivic wins he's knocking Medeiros out so i do i want this fight going the distance no but if 
Yancy Medeiros was to win this fight, I would think he wins a decision. I would think, again, he uses the jab, he uses the reach, he sees the outside, mix in a few takedowns even. That'd be nice, but ultimately that all probably leads to a Medeiros decision. So because I'm taking Yancy and I got Yancy potentially winning by decision, if I was to bet a prop on this fight, and again, I don't really like them, uh, but that Yancy Medeiros plus 260 by decision, it's just like, she, I have a little sprinkle at that. Yeah, I definitely knew you were going to be going the decision route on this fight. But regardless, I do think that we both make some solid cases here. Both guys are violence, and we definitely have seen them go a full 50 minutes in this spot as well. But uh, I'm hoping that we see some violence just for the sake of actually It'll having fight. some violence for sure. Yeah. Exactly. And just a reminder, this is actually an early card, 1 p.m. Eastern prelim start time, 4 p.m. Eastern start time for the main card. So don't get caught napping when the fights are <laughs> when the fights are going down, Cody. Let's do it. All right. <laughs> Let's get into the second fight here we got charles rosa going up against the guy that i still say is the doppelganger of cody we got justin james he's a fucking ugly dude man i don't know what to say. The, the ugly the ugly saftic brother I'll just i remember your name. first tweet was the homeless version <laughs> cody j safty but yeah. well sometimes i look homeless myself so i don't know what to say about it i don't know and, man it just gives me those vibes yeah you're not wrong dude and the difference in our hairline is i wear a hat and he's not allowed to fight with one on <laughs> but I, I hear you all the same all right we got minus 170 on charles rosa and plus 150 on the guitar hero and probably you know the worst nickname of all time uh justin james now for you guys have been, who have been following me for a long time especially during this covid era you guys know that i love fading justin james i just don't think he's a ufc caliber fighter he is no good one thing that i actually found when i was doing my research throughout the week is that the guy actually has a, uh, a, a two wins over Daquan Townsend on the amateur scene. He beat him way back in 2010 and 2011. I believe it was taking place at 185 or 170 pounds. But you see Daquan Townsend, super scrawny, super small, has no idea what the fuck he's doing, but does have some decent jujitsu off of his back at times that James was able to get out of. And back then, it looked like Justin James was the guy that everybody was trying to prop up to try to make this superstar of some sort, but it just never really panned out that way for him. He seemed to have a decent wrestling background, just doesn't use it as often anymore. And it seems like his gas think is definitely not as good as it used to be especially with him having a five-round decision victory over regional a guy that is the gatekeeper it seems like troy lamson uh way back in the day uh, i believe that was actually five or six years ago at this point in time but in the ufc gets in my opinion i hate calling it lucky but i believe he got lucky with that shot against frank camacho uh you know stamps his arrival in the ufc on super short notice knocks him out in less than a minute then goes out there, loses to Gavin Tucker. Shame on anybody that was betting Justin James all the way up to a, a favorite in that fight. Uh, Gavin Tucker gets him out of there in the third round. Gabriel Benitez, another one, gets him out of there in the first round with beautiful body kicks. And then last time around, I actually made a small wager on Justin James in his fight against Devontae Smith, but just by a props perspective. I took him round one plus 600. You know, Devontae Smith coming back from a ruptured Achilles, uh, her first ever knockout loss, all that type of stuff. I'm like, okay, let me just, I'll give Justin James a little bit here, but it didn't pan out is what it is. He ends up getting finished in the second round because of his eye closing. But this fight, I truly believe it's all in Rosa's favor, right? The only time Rosa ever been knocked out one time by Shane Burgos in a fight that went pretty much the entirety of the three rounds Two, the first two rounds, Charles Rosa was having massive success against Shane Burgos, beating him to the punch, having uh, better success, and then eventually getting knocked out in the third round due to, I believe, like consecutive blows that were landing on him. Justin James, I believe he only has about five or six minutes to win this fight. That's how long his power is sustainable. And I believe after that, it starts to fall off. His cardio starts to fall off. And then he's a lot 
lot easier to get out of there, which I think Charles Rosa will take a complete advantage of. There's times you see Charles Rosa in his southpaw stance. That's where he brings out the the low hands, the karate style, the Wonder Boy style. But when he goes switches back to orthodox, that's where you see like his conventional boxing style, which allows him to stay a little bit more safe, especially from fighters that have that big power out there. Uh, and then mix in his black belt in jiu-jitsu, super offensive off of his back. Even though he got grinded out by Derek Minner in his last fight, every second it seemed like he was throwing up a submission armbar, triangle, whatever it was, just to keep Derek Minner from being able to settle for on top. Now, I, I know there's a lot of people that have a bad taste in their mouth from Charles Rosa because of his last three fights, right? He loses to Derek Minner last time around, picks up a win over Kevin Aguilar, which I thought was a solid fight. I thought he did what he needed to do to win that fight. And then before that, uh, the Bryce Mitchell fight, but we're going to throw that out of the out, out the window because there's no way Justin James is going to be tying my guy Charles Rosa up in a, into a pretzel in, uh, this coming weekend. But I do think that Rosa will survive. All the shots are going to be coming his way. I think it's going to look similar to the Kevin Aguilar fight, but I don't think that Charles, uh, Justin James is as good as Kevin Aguilar. And I don't even think that Kevin Aguilar is that good either. I just think that Justin James tele telegraphs his shots a lot more. I think he just, you know... Um, he just focuses on that one-shot knockout, and if it doesn't come to fruition, he starts to slow down, and his opponents are able to take advantage of it. And I think that's exactly what Charles Rosa is going to do here. So uh, I think we see Charles endure that first round, and then after that, start to take over. And I think eventually it's going to come via club and sub or him landing a takedown and eventually finding a sub on the gassed uh, Justin Jane. So the spot that I like is uh, Rosa via sub. I believe that line is currently sitting around plus 210, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, plus uh, plus. Uh, actually, you know what? Uh, one of the best bets I'm going to be giving about is Rosa inside the distance at plus 145. I think that just covers all the bases. I know the KO prop is around plus 610. That could come to fruition if he gets dominant position and just starts raining down shots. But I, I, I love Rosa in the spot. I think he wins pretty much any way that he wants, more than likely inside the distance. Cody, how do you see this fight go down? Yeah, I would agree. I think Rosa is a much better fighter, and though he hasn't been given a very good account of himself lately, it all really does come back to Styles make fights, and when you give him a power wrestler who's strong, physical, and going to take him down, then his takedown defense just is non-existent. If you want to give him a high-level striker, man, honestly, his counter-punching is really good. You brought up the Burgos fight, which is excellent example. Uh, Burgos, my guy, and Rosa's probably uh, had it 1-1. There's a bias there more than likely, but a lot of people had it 2 nothing Rosa prior to that third-round stoppage by Shane Burgos. And you see how Burgos has advanced up the rankings and become a credible threat. And obviously, he's just a such a wild fighter that uh, he's going to be able to go out there and score TKO victories. But outside of that, Rosa's been cast iron. But you also look at the Kevin Aguilar fight. Like, if you want to come at him, if you want to pressure him, he fights very well off his back foot. He's very mobile, moves well linearly, uh, moves well, well laterally, stays out of harm's way, and just counterpunches you. So, yeah, Justin James' style is a little more reckless. He's going to run in face forward, crash that pocket. I can see Rosa having a lot of success. James does know how to wrestle, per se. You know, does I think he wrestled in high school. I do not believe he wrestled collegiately, but he Back in the day, you know, the Daquan fight, like back when he was a Michigan regional scene guy, he had a little bit of wrestling in his arsenal, so why not use that against Charles Rosa? Well, one, Rosa is a BJJ black belt, so sure, Bryce Mitchell's able to stay out of harm's way, but a lot of guys are going to have trouble dealing with that, you know, active guard from him. And the second of all is like, dude just got ragdolled pillar to post in grappling against Devontae Smith, who was a primary striker, who had been off for nearly two years, and was coming up a massive injury, a knockout loss and a massive injury, Achilles' uh, heel rupture, as you mentioned. So it's like, oh, if that's your grappling, that's not going to cut against Charles Rosa. Your striking is not going to cut against Charles Rosa. Your cardio is not going to cut against Charles Rosa. It's all there. I, I believe just like you, because we're the same, right? Uh, Justin James shouldn't have been in the UFC. He's not UFC caliber. I've, see I've seen him lose to Jesse Gross 
in a fight in yeah. Ontario where we brought him in as the B side and he willingly took it and lost. Uh, shouldn't be in the UFC, but he's training in Vegas. He's on weight. Camacho needs a replacement. Three days notice. He jumps in and he gets that win. He was I've, one of the first guys, right? He was like one of the first yeah. guys in the COVID era that probably didn't deserve to be in the UFC, but had the uh, you know benefit of living in Vegas, like you said. Yeah, he's he's there. He's local. They need a guy. And it's like, hey, man, stay ready. Be ready. And you'll find a spot. Not only does he go out there and knock out Frank Camacho, he gets a career high payday of uh, he signed a 12 and 12, right? But because he was taken on short notice, they gave him $17,000 win bonus instead of the 12 and 12. So it's 12 and 17. But he scores $50,000 performance bonus for the knockout. So talk about changing your entire career, the entire trajectory of your career and life for that matter, with a just a monstrous payday for Justin James in your first fight in the UFC. Short notice, established himself. But I, I have faded him in all four fights. I paid that night. And uh, the three nights since then has been gone pretty according to plan. Like he's... He just doesn't have the cardio. He doesn't have the durability. He's able to knock out. You mentioned uh, Lucky. It was Lucky. He was Lucky. He fried Camacho. I'm going to disagree with that. I think he legitimately knocked down Frank Camacho. Uh, yeah, but, I but it was him Lucky. But, yeah, yeah it, it, wasn't, it wasn't Lucky, but it wasn't Camacho. That yeah. was the first fight where it was like, oh, Frank's done. Frank's over the hill. And everything from Frank since then was a subsequent loss and three pullouts of fights. So... Frank's done and that was the night we realized it so he was lucky that he got Frank that night but it wasn't a lucky punch it was good on him he tried to do it against Gavin and he hurt Gavin but as soon as Gavin recovered it's game over you know he didn't even try to do it versus Gabriel Benitez he was that far outclassed and in the Devontae Smith fight like uh, I, I had a, like a 10-8 first round and then he gets finished in the second takes a lot of damage eyes swollen shut no good this should be Charles Rosa all day and then I got to get your take on it. I know I got to make it a quick episode tonight, but I got to get your take on it. So, so it's, it's, a, it's a walk in the park, Charles Rosa, we're thinking, right? The one thing is that Justin James goes on record and says, I'm betting my entire fight purse, $25,000 on myself. <laughs> That's how confident I am. I'm betting the $25,000. When I saw that, I was like, shit, he's going to wrestle, isn't he? <laughs> How do you beat Charles Rosa? I just take him down. But that's the thing, though. I I think even if he wrestles here, though, he's going to spend his gas tank and he's going to find himself in an armbar or a triangle and he's going to get subbed. Like, it's crazy how active Charles Rosa is off of his back that I think he's going to be able to catch. Like, the fact that he caught Manny Bermudez in a submission, we know how high level Manny Bermudez is when it comes to the jiu-jitsu realm. You know, he has his eating problems and cutting weight problems. He must weigh in that fight, too. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? But I, I, I think even if Justin James goes out there and tries to wrestle he's gonna get caught in something man his his gas tank can't handle that and i'm really hoping that he's talking shit about putting twenty five thousand dollars on himself because he's gonna be a broke man and without a job if he ends up losing this weekend okay so at first i was like she twenty five thousand dollars he's put on himself obviously him and his coaches see something i don't clearly he knows charles rosa's got a bum knee or something like clearly there's something that i'm not seeing on the surface but then i got thinking about it this motherfucker ain't got twenty five thousand dollars that's that's smoke in the mirrors as far as i'm concerned no and and think about this okay so you've you've lost your last three fights in the ufc and your contract is currently at a 14 and 14 okay so if he was to win this fight he would stand and get paid twenty eight thousand dollars but if he loses his base is only 14 so when he says i'm betting my money he's already betting his win money as well so that way let's say you lose this fight to charles rosa there's no win bonus. Now you've lost the $25,000. You only got your base to recover it. You're out of money. You're out of a job. Yeah. Right, right, right. Now now, now this becomes n- number two, okay? 
the UFC pays you after the fact. So how are you going to a Vegas casino with $25,000 of your your money when you haven't been paid yet? Now, someone would argue that performance bonus. Do you really think he's using half of his 50K bonus, which he collected a full year ago, which was a career high day payday for him? No. This guy's a professional fighter who had, at that point, never tasted a little bit of real success. He has a win over Pretty Boy Troy, like you said. I, I like Lampson a lot, yeah. you know? Wrestled out of uh, Michigan State. So Sanford I, MMA guy. Yeah. Sanford MMA guy, great athlete. Uh, that's a solid win as far as I'm concerned. But when you realistically think about it, he's been fighting professionally for eight years, okay? In those eight years, he's never professionally defeated a UFC veteran. He's, <laughs> he's, never, he's never fought on a Bellator. He's never fought on a... PFL, he's never fought. Oh, sorry, that's he did fight on one Bellator, and he fought once on World Series of Fighting. Went lost World Series of Fighting, won on Bellator. They ne they never brought him back. He's not got to travel internationally. He hasn't competed for one FC. He hasn't gone to KSW. He hasn't experienced none of this in eight full years as a pro. Do you think this is a wealthy man? No, that fifty thousand dollars would have gone a long way. Pay some yeah. bills, you know. Maybe maybe put a down payment on a little spot. Vegas isn't the most expensive. You ain't living in Las Vegas, pal, but you can go to Henderson, Nevada. I'll knock all that <laughs> far away. And, you know, get, get your shit going. You don't walk into a casino and drop 25 on the table. So I think him saying that is smoke and mirrors. And yeah. if I was Charles Rosa and I read that, I'd be like, shit, what does he know that I know? Yeah. It's mental warfare. I don't think he, I don't. So I, I'm going to agree. I, yeah. I, I think Charles Rosa gets the job done. Uh, uh, the I last, did, the last I did, point. I didn't though, realize, actually, though, uh, did you say inside the distance or by decision? How do you think he gets done? The, the only official prop I went on it was the over one and a half, which was the minus 175. And I think, again, Charles Rosa probably does take this cat out, but he's going to have to wait until he tires. And yeah. you've got Justin James. He knows his job's on the line. If he does have a bet on it, he's going to fight like a desperate man. That desperation will carry him past that one and a half. Even Devontae Smith really had to put a thrashing on him to yeah. get a, a doctor stoppage out of it. So <clears throat> I think Rosa could finish him, but he finishes him tail end of the second or into the third. I'm going to catch that one and a half ticket. And if for whatever reason I'm completely wrong on this and James goes and takes him down, we're definitely hitting the over one and a half. James wins this fight. I'm pretty confident, even though he's a brawler and he's got power. Like if he wins this fight, he's gonna have to grind. If Rosa wins this fight, he could catch him, whether it be a TKO or a submission. Like he's got the inside of the distance factor to him. But as far as a one prop that I liked on this that I thought was on the safer side, minus 175 over one and a half. All right. I do want to give a quick shout out to the the troll of the chat, uh, Mr. Tajik Bay. Drop in a hundred bucks of donations on this chat alone. Ooh, pretty much fueling. Uh, the the show at this point, I might as well have to put him down as a fucking executive producer for that type of fucking <laughs> donation. But shout out to my guy Tajik Bay. I know he is the ultimate troll in all the MMA live chats, but he comes with a good heart, so he always has a place on this chat. Even before he made those donations, he always has a place here. So I appreciate the donor right there, my brother. All right, let's move this thing along. We're only out to the third fight here. Uh, we got Julia Avila going up against Julia Stolyarenko. If you guys remember, they were actually scheduled to go out there and fight uh, back in March. I believe it was and that's where we had that uh, crazy situation with Stoliorenko falling off the uh, the scale falling into the backdrop they tried getting her back on the scale and yeah I'm like guys cut this shit out it was almost as bad as the Ryan Benoit one that happened a couple weeks later but uh, they call off the fight and they give them another three months now they're back at it hopefully she managed her weight much better this time around and she has a much smoother weight cut so they can actually make it to the gauge here this is one of those spots I'm actually looking for a violence bet as I believe both girls definitely bring it I think Avila has has the power to uh, cause uh, Stoliorenko some issues here, whether it's with ground and pound or even on the feet. And then Stoliorenko, on the other hand, 
This girl is a Lithuanian Ronda Rousey. Eight out of nine victories coming by armbar. She just twists these girls up and puts them into knots and then eventually grabs her arm. She has some very good jiu-jitsu, but I think Julia Avila will be ready for it. Regardless, I think both girls are going to throw down. I think the under two and a half is a spot that I'm liking the most here. My, uh, plus 135, plus 155, I'm seeing at a couple spots. I do think that we're going to see these girls go to war. The one thing that you guys will remember Stolia Renko the most from, other than the fact that she was on the Ultimate Fighter at one point in time, she had that super bloody fight against Lisa Versosa back in Invicta where they went five rounds. Uh, it was a nasty elbow that landed on, I believe it was on Stolia Renko, and it just absolutely filled the cage with blood. It was almost like Nicholas Dobby Ross Houston style. It was just one of the bloodiest fights I've ever seen. Um, but I do think that her durability is going to take a little bit of a hit here, especially with a heavy puncher like Julia Avila. I will say this about Avila. She did underperform last time around against Sajara Eubanks, uh, crashing as a big underdog that night. And Sajara Eubanks was able to get it done, just pretty much controlling her on the ground. Uh, I think we'll see a better Avila this time around. Not to mention, right after that fight had gotten called off against Stolyarenko back in March, she actually got kicked out of her gym, and I don't recall the exact reason why. I'm sure there's always gym drama. Me and you know all about gym drama nowadays. So she gets kicked out. She ends up starting up her own gym in the same city, and now she's pretty much her own head coach. I'm not 100% sure who's going to be coaching her other than her husband, who is more often not in her corner. But I am going to be going with the Avila side. I actually like Avila by TKO. I do believe she's going to be able to ground this fight and then start landing some ground and pound. That's Stolyarenko. Lyarenko is not going to be able to handle. Uh, so Avila by KO plus 285 plus 300. That's the spot that I'm liking here. I'm fully expecting uh, Cody to bring me back to earth as to why this fight is going to go to a decision. So lay it on me, brother. Yeah, I think it goes to the decision because they're both too durable. And the, the, the finish side of things, I think, would be Avila. You mentioned the fact that Story Lenko, uh, Lithuanian Ronda Rousey, but at least Ronda was beating some good girls, where right? At least she was beating, you know, the Alexis Davis of the world. And uh, Well, I guess she never actually armbarred Alexis Davis, but you know what I'm saying. She's fighting the best fighters that they were presenting to her at that time and she's arm barring them you know Kat Zingano was a legitimate BJJ black belt you're like you're submitting good people Storylanko submitted absolutely nobody so yeah the fact that she likes to pull guard in the arm bar like I just don't see it working you obviously have Avila as well she's a BJJ brown belt and she's got really good top pressure it's like pulling guard black in an belt. arm bar she's a black belt now yeah. pulling guard in an arm bar is not a good idea whatsoever if that's the route that she decides to go then yeah Avila is going to have a lot of success so as far as Storylenko winning the fight, I think she just got to break Avila mentally. She almost seems like she's a tad bit fragile mentally. And you know what? I'm a history guy. Like, well, let's look at the entire picture more so than the last little bit. And as an entirety of things, right? She starts her pro career in 2012, right? She has an amateur fight after her pro debut. If you look at her amateur results, she fought as an amateur one year after winning her professional debut. Why? Why go back to the amateur ranks? But it's like there's uncertainty of herself. Then she actually takes off four years before coming back in 2016. Now, mind you, she has a win over Marion Renault. She has a win over Nico Montano. And let, she just doesn't really fight all that often. I don't think she really wants to fight. She's got the, the jiu-jitsu. She's got some good striking. She was a D1 um, track team star at the University of Notre Dame. She's a great athlete. But she's not like competing regularly. She competes very infrequently. And uh, again, there's just these long lapses. Then her first pro loss, Marcia Allen. 49 seconds of the first round, she calls it off with a hand injury. You oh, don't no, no, no. see, you that? see that. No, no, no. Did you see that fight, though? That the was hand really busted? bad. It was like her, her bone was coming through. Oh, it popped it was up? Bad. Right. Okay, well, fair enough. That was bad. That was bad. F fair enough. Yeah, fair yeah. enough. 
Um, and she was smiling. She goes, she's like showing it to the camera and smiling and shit. Like obviously you can't let it continue. Yeah, that's, no, yeah, yeah, that's pretty dirt, dirt McGirt. And they call bad. it a TKO, not a no contest, eh? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Injury. Yeah. Um, prior, after that, it looks like it's a good run, and she does look good, and the results are certainly there. But one has to imagine, you know, the Gina Mazzani fight. It's pretty low level. The Penny Kianzad fight. She got a much different version of Penny than we're seeing now, and she relies on her ability to just get these fights to the ground, float from top position. But that Sanjara Eubanks fight, she looked lethargic, man. She looked out of it, even though she's now a BJJ black belt. You saw that there was clear levels to this. She had almost no game off her back. She had almost no takedown defense. She had no sense of urgency. It was a really flat performance. But it was a flat performance out of a 33-year-old fighter who was on record saying her training wasn't all that good and then proceeds to get kicked out of the gym after that. All not good stuff. But then she picks up the phone, or she goes on Twitter, picks up the phone and tweets it, and says, like, hey, I, 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 uh, I need a gym to train at. And an American top team gets at her. And a uh, Lions MMA gets at her. And James Krause gets at her, Gloria yeah. May Fitness. And she responds to him and says, I'll see you Monday, coach. Only she never shows up to Gloria May Fitness. Instead, she opens up her own gym where she's on her own head coach with her same corner man. Only she's lacking the bodies. And there's not a whole lot of women in her division fighting out of Oklahoma. Uh, I guess outside of Emily Ducote, who's not at her way, by the way. Like, I just don't think she's put herself in a position to advance. And she's 33. Like, she's not getting any younger. So I see a, probably a slight regression of her skills. And all this gets to me at is the fight goes the distance. Because whereas she does have good top control and good ground and pound and all this and that, I just think she's going to be flat. She'll be flat. She could still win. She could still win on the basis of, A, get the fight to the ground. Perfect. B, Storylenko pulls guard. You don't even need to take down. And C, my God, Storylenko looked lost against the cage against Kuniskaya. She just yeah. accepted it. She just she just stood there for massive lulls of the fight with almost no answer to it. So Avila has a plan C where she can just push her up against the cage and probably yield good results out of it. As far as the striking goes, I give a slight advantage to Avila. Storylenko is just way too, you know, loopy and choppy, but she's powerful and she's tough and she's going to come forward. And so if Avila wins, grounder, float on top, win the fight, but I don't know that she ground and pound TKOs her. I don't think she submits her. Storylenko, meanwhile, you know, she's a one-trick pony with the armbar. Outside of that, she's got toughness. We saw in the Invicta fight, she fought five rounds. We saw in the Yana fight, nothing happened, but she got a deep bite on one of the armbar attempts and, you know, didn't really seem hurt. Uh, yeah, I, I would I would have to say I got probably fight going the distance. And so when I look at this one, uh, minus 150 for it to go the distance. Is that good enough? Ah, it's not bad. It's not great. Probably look at this from a pass standpoint. But because I have to make one singular prop pick on it, yeah, I guess I am leaning towards this one being another one that goes the full 15. One thing I'm going to slightly correct from you, she did actually go to Glory just only for a week, though. She spent one week there, and then she went back home and decided to open up her gym. I just what think that she this? has a connection with OKC. I'm not sure what it is, but she wants to stay over there. Uh, but she did take James Cross up on the offer, again, only for a week, though. It wasn't anything extended or anything like that. All right, let's move this thing along here. We got Martin Prackner going up against Ike Villanueva. Uh, we got minus, last time I saw it, she actually 190-ish. Yeah, still minus 190 for Prackner, plus 165 for Ike. Ike Villanueva and goddamn, how the hell is Marcin Prakniu a minus 200 favorite? Then you look at Ike Villanueva, you're like, oh, it's because of Ike. And I completely understand it, but I'm still not trusting the chin of Prakniu, even though he was able to survive that fight with Khalil Roundtree. I still do think that he has a very bad chin, does have durability issues. And I do think that Villanueva could be the guy to actually find that knockout. Now, Villanueva, I believe, out of his, uh, what is it, 18 victories, has 50 knockouts. 
has a couple UFC veterans under his belt too, even on the regional scene. Some guys like Roger Narvaez and uh, Rashad Coulter, two guys that he was able to knock out before coming to the UFC. Then he got knocked out by uh, by Chase Sherman. Chase Sherman quickly tests positive for USADA after that, or some some sort of steroid after that. Uh, I'm not 100% sure if that fight actually got changed to a no contest or not, but that is definitely something that you need to, you know, obviously remember when looking back at that fight. Jordan Wright fight goes out there, gets tied up in a Muay Thai clinch, and gets his eyebrow absolutely obliterated. That fight gets uh, called off due to a doctor stoppage, bad cut. I completely understand that. Then he comes back and fights probably the best fight that he could absolutely have against Vinicius Mojea. Mojea is unsuccessful in getting the fight to the ground and then just eats a beautiful counter punch uh, in the uh, second round and gets flatlined in about 40 seconds into that second round. Ike seems to have some very solid durability. It seems like he could definitely take a punch, take a kick. Obviously, that Charles or Chase Sherman fight, like I said, you have to remember that he tested positive for Usada after that. Even in Chase Sherman's next fight against Andre Arlovsky, you can definitely tell there was a huge benefit for him being on whatever the fuck he was on and that uh, Villanueva fight. I do think Villanueva is very durable. Like I said, I do think he'll be able to take whatever practice I was uh, throwing at him, and he should be able to counter him properly and put his uh, put his lights out once again. I don't think that Pracknell will be able to take any clean shots from Villanueva, at least for the majority of 15 minutes in this fight. The thing that allowed Pracknell to be successful in his fight against Khalil Rautry, he just centered his entire game plan around kicks. He kicked, 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 hit, kicked, stayed on the outside, didn't allow Khalil to really close the distance and get his big shots off, which is why he was able to keep his chin safe and stay out of the way, like I said, of the big shots of Cleo, but I think he's going to have a lot more trouble dealing with the much more durable Ike Villanueva. Villanueva have, will trust his chin a lot more than Cleo trusts his own chin, and I think he'll be able to walk through the kicks of Pracnio and then eventually find that knockout, which is why I'm going to be going with Villanueva here and Villanueva by KO at plus 275. Give me that money, especially against the super chinny and uh, yeah, and bad. I'm going to say it bad, Marcin Pracnio. How do you see this one going down? Yeah, I actually agree with you. I want that dog shot on uh, Ike Villanueva which is like a scary premise when you think about it, but it's just an auto-fade on Marcin Pracnio. You got a guy here that had previously lost his first three fights in the UFC by first-round knockout, gets the win, but there's multiple factors in that that play into that. One, he did get hurt in the first round against Roundtree, but two, Roundtree botched the weight cut and showed up gassed. He was gassed two minutes into that fight, stopped throwing, still kept it competitive, by the way, and then the third thing, the fight was in Dubai on Fight Island for McGregor Poirier, so it was a big octagon, man, like a big, big one. The apex, there's not enough like space to move around. You're right, he actually did a really good job of uh, of staying out of Khalil Roundtree's uh, range, staying on the outside. If he's not going to be able to do that against Ike, he's going to have to brawl a little bit more. And if you're going to have to brawl with Ike Villanueva, it, uh, it, it could definitely be a bad night for you. When you look at his losses, Sam Alvey is a natural middleweight. Sam Alvey actually knocks him out twice Probably in that fight. Probably the most the hilarious <laughs> knockout sequence of all time. What is he doing running straight into the pond? His hands are down. He just got dropped. So it's like, home. Oh, With the same time. punch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Punch. I knew right then. I was like, this guy is oh. screwed. Now they give him Agamed Ankalaev next time out. He's my boy. And so yeah, it was like, yeah, he's got no chance here. But the Mike Rodriguez fight, how easy it was for slow Mike just to cut right through this man. It was like, he's going to have a real problem. And, 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 you know, Mike's not exactly a big 205 or he's kind of like skinny, small frame for the division. Small, like skinny, but I mean, he is six foot four. I'll give him that. But yeah, he just blows right through him. And then you got Khalil Roundtree that should have been able to do all that. But Khalil's got kind of his own worst enemy. At his best, he could knock out any man on the planet. At his worst, he, he's not good. And he had teased to move to heavyweight. He was training in Thailand. This is right during the pandemic. All of his training partners are gone. He's got to quarantine multiple times. 
Uh, I just don't, I think Prakniang took advantage of a bad version of Khalil Roundtree and sprung the upset. But <clears throat> all the same, yeah, I mean, uh, now he's a big favorite over Ike Villanueva. Like, I don't quite get it. You mentioned the fact that the Chase Sherman fight will give him a pass because Sherman was on the sauce. But I also give him a pass because the fight was at heavyweight, you know? Yeah. Ike, Ike's fought at 85, man. And he's probably best suited for 205. But, like, to take a fight on short notice on your UFC debut against a returning Chase Sherman, who's on the gear, is a big heavyweight, realistically. He's a very large man, played collegiate football. Like, that's that's a lot to overcome, I would think. And then, yeah, the subsequent effort against Jordan Wright. Uh, Jordan Wright's one of these guys that starts really fast. He jumps on his opponents really fast, right? And that he just gets the jump on of him, and it's a stoppage due to that knee. And then, finally, Vinicius Moreira. If Ike really is the guy that we thought he was back in the day, a win over Roger Novais is nothing to snuff your your nose at. You know that that's a legitimate win. BJJ Black Belt, UFC veteran, guys in tremendous shape now, great athlete. <clears throat> he, he's got power, he's got durability, but he makes it dirty. He makes it rugged, and that's exactly what he's going to have to do here against Prakniya. So you mentioned the fact that he's live for that. Uh, by TKO, and I think it's a pretty generous offer. But uh, I also really like this over, this under two and a half, minus 135. Like, that looks pretty good to me, man. Either Pragnia is going to run into something, or Pragnia is a guy that, outside of that last win by decision over Khalil Roundtree, he shows a lot of knockouts out of his own. So if Ike's looking to brawl, and this becomes both guys standing there exchanging, yeah, there's a chance that Ike could get caught too. And the under two and a half is going to cover that either side. To me, it I love overs. I love fights go the distance. To me, like, it would be very surprising if this thing sees the bell. I just don't think that the way both guys' styles go and the, the way that they're probably going to match up in this particular fight, that it would go the 15 minutes. So I think Ike catches him at some point. The straight-up dog money play, good enough for me. But the, the Ike by TKO, definitely worth a look. And then on the kind of hedge out on both sides, that under two and a half should probably hit as well. Shout out to my guy, Danny Legs, who's also on that play as well, under two and a half, around that minus 130 line. Um, all right, let's move on to the next fight. Let's not waste too much more time. We got Warley Alves going up against short notice Jeremiah Wells. In terms of odds, we're looking at minus 230 for Alves and plus 190 for the UFC, UFC newcomer and former CFFC champion Jeremiah Wells. Uh, don't have too much to say on this one. <clears throat> From what I know about Jeremiah Wells, likes to fight in like uh, bursts almost, really does explode at times to go out there and really land some big shots. Um, you know, at times you seem quite inactive. Uh, and that's where I think that we'll see Wally Alves start to take over. Um, again, short notice, taking this high level of a step up compared to, you know, the guys that he was fighting on the regional scene. I think he's going to be in for a rude awakening and not to mention on short notice here. Definitely not a good look. Alves is a guy that I fully faded last time around when he went out there and fought Munir Lezez, but we definitely found out more about Lezez than we did about Alves that night. And Alves was definitely up for the test that night. Here, though, I think he's getting a little bit of uh, a lucky break because I think his originally scheduled opponent, which was Ramazan Amiv, I thought Amiv was going to be able to, you know, Amive his way through Alves and that doesn't mean by you know like fucking steamroll him or anything but Amive we all know fights to the level of his opponent but still convincingly beats them I thought he was going to be able to do the same thing to Alves uh, but now Alves getting a much better opponent in front of him I I'm just I'm trying to figure out the method in which Alves is going to win on my podcast I officially said that he's just going to go out there and I'll point him and maybe grind him out or something and take this fight by a decision uh, which currently has the odds 
Uh, Alves at uh, via decision is currently sitting at plus 365. Not too bad of a line. Uh, Wells never been finished. Two decision losses. Uh, it seems the majority of his wins come by finish, and it seems like he does seem to slow down a little bit the longer the fights go. Alves has his own issues with cardio, especially when he is pushed. So if Wells is able to push him, maybe we'll see a little bit of a slop fest going into the second and third rounds here. But I'm going to go with the guy that definitely has more experience in Wally Alves, and I'll take him to win this fight by decision. Plus 365 seems pretty damn good to me. But again, a lot of question marks on this one. Can you bring any more light to this? And do you actually think that Jeremiah Wells has a shot to pull the upset? Yeah, I mean, he's always got a shot. Anybody's got a shot. And particularly, anybody's got a shot against Worley Alves. You really got to survive that first round. And his game tends to rapidly fall off of a cliff. But yeah, Wells is not really known for his cardio either. Wells actually beat a friend of mine, Scott Hudson, back in 2011. And at that time, it was like... Yes, handsome, huh? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Handsome Scott. Um, at this point, it's like, oh, shit, dude. Jeremiah Wells is actually legitimate talent. I mean, this guy, he just buzzsawed through a guy that everybody thinks is a legitimate talent on the Canadian scene. He was so young at that point. Like, we didn't know Scott would go on to great things. But Scott went on to some pretty good things. You know, he fought 15 more times after that Jeremiah Wells fight. Wells, meanwhile, took like a three-year break. You know, like, he, he came back in 2018, 2019. He racked up the majority of his fights. But, again, I think it's difficult to say the guy's never been finished when it's like the guy's never really done much. He hasn't really fought anybody that would be considered a dangerous opponent. As an amateur, he actually got knocked out 19 seconds into the second round. But that's so long ago. It's 10 years ago. What do you take away from that? There's just not enough there. We lost to Manny Wallow, who's probably most notable for beating Phoenix Jones in World Series of Fighting. But Wallow's not really much of a finisher. Uh, and he loses that fight by decision. He has a draw CFFC against his Basil Havez. Jason Norwood was a decent CES regional scene guy, but again, this is another decision victory. Vinicius de Jesus is a loss. They're, those are all low-level guys, man. You're you're going to fight those guys, and now you're jumping in to fight Worley Alves, who's dynamite, who's scored big finishes over much better guys, including the likes of Nordin Taleb and Colby Covington, obviously most infamously. But beyond that, when you look at Worley Alves, one could argue maybe he's kind of shaken off a little bit of his past struggles in some sense. He's a 50-50 fighter if he shows up or if he doesn't show up. I get that. But the losses to James Cress and Randy Brown, again, that's a much higher level than Jeremiah Wells. It's the wins that are actually kind of impressive here. The Munir Lazez, right? First round body kick, Oh shit, Warley Alves, nice little body kick there. That Sergio Marais fight, man, his striking looked much improved. Beat up Sergio Marais. Uppercut knocks him out in the third round. A notoriously fairly durable guy in Sergio Marais. And then even fired to that, that Sultan Aliyev fight. Remember Aliyev's eye, like, just swells completely shut. It's like, you know what? Alves is working a lot on his striking. He's got the BJJ black belt. He's got the guillotine choke. The biggest thing is cardio, right? He gassed in the Randy Brown laws. Gassed in the James Krause loss. Gassed in the Brian Barbarena loss. Like, he's got bad cardio. I just keep trying to think back to the fact that he's 30 years old. Like, he's not old. This is a guy that won the Ultimate Fighter Brazil. He, on the Ultimate Fighter Brazil, beat Wendell Oliveira, UFC veteran. Uh, Ishmael de Jesus, you know, the man, you know, pseudo champion, jungle fight champion. Guy fights in Russia right now. Huge body. He beat Alan Joban, Colby Covington, Nordin Taleb. Um... Him operating at even a fraction of what he's capable of is is just so much more significant than anything Jeremiah Wells has seen. Wells is 34. He hasn't fought in two years. He's taking this fight on short notice. He actually did take a UFC debut, what was it, a few yeah. months ago now, yeah, against Miguel Beza. Yes. Right. And Beza's not medically cleared. And then so it's like, you accept the fight. Your opponent is not medically cleared. And the UFC shelves you for nine months does that make any sense either he was hurt or he wasn't accepting fights or something was off 
But now he hasn't fought professionally in two years. He's 34. He had a suspect gas tank to begin with. Fuck, man, he's got a lot to overcome here. So again, I love decision props, but I think Worley Alves TKO plus 150 is certainly worth having a look at. The Worley Alves inside the distance is probably smarter because he could just lock up the neck. You know, yeah. he's got a hell of a bite on him. But I, I almost feel like Alves meets him in the center of the cage, puts some pressure on him, hurts him. And if for whatever reason this does get out of the first round, Alves's game falls apart. Shit. Wells actually presents a perfect opportunity in that his game is also going to fall apart. He's on short notice. It, it, if you have a full camp and your cardio is bad, taking a fight on three days' notice, four days' notice is not going to make it any better, especially at 34, especially with the bright lights and the UFC and Dana sitting there and it's the apex and it's a small atmosphere and you're taking on a guy that's got 10 fights in the UFC and beat Colby Covington and won the Ultimate Fighter. Like That doesn't sound like a very good spot for a guy making his debut. So I got Alves by TKO plus 150. All right, all right. It seems like the short Norris newcomer is going to be turned away by a Brazilian. Now, here's another Brazilian coming up, taking up uh, a very hot up-and-coming prospect. We got Michel Prezeres, fresh off the sauce, going up against Shavkat Rachmanov. Last time we saw Prezeres, she went out there and got his eight-fight winning streak snapped by Ishmael Nardiev, who now obviously does not find himself in the UFC anymore. But... Quickly thereafter, Preserves was popped by USADA for his steroids, and he did accept a sanction, which ended up keeping him out of competition for over two years. Now here he is stepping back in the cage against a very tough Shavkat Rachmanov, a Kazakhstani fighter that has a ton of potential. Obviously picked up a huge win in his UFC debut against Alex Cowboy Oliveira, winning that fight in the first round via guillotine. Um, this is the fight that, that well, I feel like... We're going to definitely learn a little bit of a, about Shavkat in this fight. He has a couple of decent wins on the regional scene en route to the UFC. You know, everybody, you know, another spot where everybody's hounding my DMs saying that Shavkat Rachmanov should be the lock of the night play for this week. But I still have a little bit of question marks. I want to see him prove himself a little bit more. But then again, you see, you know, uh, Michelle Prezeres about to be 40 years old next week, fresh off the sauce. Who knows how deflated he's going to come looking, especially with knowing how bulky this dude normally is i can't wait to see him on the on the scales tomorrow morning but i think that rachmanov with this size i believe he's gonna have a 10 inch reach advantage as well as close to six to seven inch height advantage it's gonna look just as comical as when william knight went up against daun jung a couple of months ago but let's see if shavkat can utilize that height and reach advantage to the best of its abilities to keep michelle on the outside and really start to box him up we know the majority of Shavkat's win have come via submission, um, but it's going to be tough to find that neck, which is completely non-existent on Michel Prezer, so he's going to have to resort to finding a limb. But even that, I think he's going to have a difficult time in doing. Now, I see Shavkat winning this fight one of two ways. One, Prezer is completely gassing out, finishing him in the third round just due to exhaustion, or two, by decision, by just grinding him out, sticking on the outside, and just letting his striking game going. He's definitely a much better grappler than he is a striker, but you definitely have to mind your P's and Q's when you're going up against a very tough, strong Michel Prezeres. So I'm on the Shavkat side. I, I, you know, I, I just can't back him at this crazy line that he's at because I do want to see him prove himself a little bit more. But the props I'm looking at, possible round three here for Rachmanov, plus 800, Seems like the steam is coming in. People know what the hell is good. And then uh, Shavkat by decision at plus 260. Uh, again, preserves only three losses ever in his career. All by decision. Shows the durability. Always is able to make it to the 15 minutes if he's not the one getting the finish. I still like Shavkat here. I'll ultimately go with Shavkat by decision. Uh, like I said, at plus three, or sorry, plus 260. That's the spot that I'm liking most. How are you seeing this one? Yeah, very similar. Very similar. So, yeah, you've got, you, yeah, okay, is Prezeris the guy he used to be? No, no, no. Fair enough. Two years off the sauce, but 
Man, I'm a guy that, again, I love me, my history. And so you've got Michel Prezeris. He's 40 years old. He's got 29 pro fights. And my friend, Manpreet, would you like to let the audience know how many years he's been fighting professionally for? Oh, God. It, Ch- check been, his debut date. Check his, his pro debut not. date. Uh, let, me, let me let me pull that up. Uh, pro <laughs> debut. Good God. <laughs> October 9th, 2000. Motherfucker, I've been fighting pro for 21 years. That God is damn. crazy. I didn't realize that. Holy Never shit. been finished. Never, Never been, been finished, finished in a 21-year-long career. 29 Started pro career fights. 16-0, and that makes his UFC debut and loses to Paulo Thiago. And yeah, so- and, and, and Paulo Thiago was the man at that time. He yeah. was supposed to be anyways. He knocked yeah. out Koscheck and everyone loved him. Yeah. And then besides that, he's lost to Kevin Lee, who's, you know, pretty good and then over Merbeck Tysonov back in the day yeah and so him losing that last one against uh, Ishmael Nordiev you certainly see that he's he's at the end of the road he's no longer the guy he used to be his wrestling's not nearly as effective the power's not quite there him at his best he was a too big of a 55er he often did miss weight coming in at 160 161 even as high as 163 and he would take advantage of the extra weight him at 170 he's just not quite as effective the fight with Zach Cummings honestly that was really close it could have gone either way and this is still three years ago for him he's gonna he was a lot fresher than than he's going to be now but the fight with Bartos Fabinski just uh it's a quick drop quick submission it looks like he's got the seven fight winning streak he's looking good he draws in with Ishmael Nordiev and he's a minus 450 favorite over a young kid from Austria known as the Austrian wonder boy yeah. making his debut as a big underdog here the guy did not go on to have any more success in the UFC and in fact the guy's not having any more success on the regional scene since being released from the UFC and yet that was that last you know impression that he left before getting suspended so what's he coming back to two years later like I, I don't know but I drum this narrative with uh, Francisco Trinaldo against Muslim Salikov. I'm like, he's never been knocked out, and he's been fighting a long time against some of the best guys. And uh, you know something? Trinaldo's been knocked down a bunch of times, and Muslim Salikov knocked him down in the first round too. But it's like, man, these guys just know how to survive. And then like, once you don't put them away, they keep coming. So on one sense, you've got Rachmanov with a 100% finish ratio. On the other hand, you got a guy that's never been finished. So it's like, what's going to happen? Where is it going to meet? I think because they're in the apex and it's a small cage, it's going to be hard to use a 10-inch reach advantage, especially over a stocky little Brazilian who's, again, he's going to try to kill as much space as there is in between you, get you up against the cage, try to rust you to the ground. If Rachmanov is able to, to separate, you know, he figures to land the better strikes, he figures to go up on the judges' scorecards, but it still probably would be a little bit close and dicey. Remember the Cowboy Oliveira versus Rachmanov fight? Where is the only success that Cowboy had in that fight? was pressing him up against the cage, yeah. right? And then he gasses himself out, but it's Cowboy Oliveira, and he showed up in bad shape. You've seen it right from the scales. Did he miss weight in that fight? I can't remember if he missed weight in that fight, but I, I 100% remember he looked absolutely zapped at weigh-ins, and you just knew he wasn't going to be able to fight for a prolonged period, and he got tired. But there's no doubt that his one little bit of success is something that Prezeris would do theoretically pretty well, especially in a smaller cage. So again, what I went to go hedge myself on both sides... The last time you mentioned all your followers are hitting you up being like, this is a lock. And, and they did this to you two weeks ago. What was the fight? Yeah. Because um, you, you, you were right. You were right on that one too. Fuck, I wish I remembered I'll it. I'll try to pull it up, but you can continue with that. <clears throat> yeah, but regardless, it was just like a lot of the time you got this narrative. It was like, oh, this guy just, he looks so good. He was undefeated on the regional scene. He won one fight over a notable guy in the UFC. And now you're just hounding this point home where it's like, this is the guy. This guy's going to win. You know, you, that that's, that's what you go with. But still, there's a little bit of that still needs to be proved. And in his case, he still needs to prove something. I do agree with that point. So as far as looking at it from a prompt perspective, the over one and a half... A minus 175, 
We'll start off with that. I like it. I like it because, again, we're going with this whole narrative of Prezeres has never been finished, and now he's going to get finished for the first time in seven and a half minutes. Like, if he does get finished, he'll have to get tired. He'll have to get beaten on a little bit. He's not going to get flash knocked out early. So I think it hits that over one and a half. If he's going to be Rakhmanov, he's just going to grind on. Grind, 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 grind. Hits the over one and a half. But I agree with that fight goes a distance play. I think with Rachmanov, he shows 100% finish ratio. So the narrative is that he can't win a decision, but he can. And for yeah. Prezeris, if Prezeris goes out there and springs the upset, almost certainly it's going to be grinding him up against the cage and scoring a few takedowns, which would be by decision. So you got a little more bolder and you decide to go with the Rachmanov by decision. I just decide to just take that fight goes the distance, covered on both sides. And at plus 110, still a plus money play. I think the one that you were referring to was actually Jordan Levitt a couple weeks ago. A lot of people are hiding me to be like, oh, Claudio Plus has nothing for him. And I agreed with them. And I agreed with them. And you know why you agree? Because it's like, yeah, well, Levitt looks pretty decent. He's got some jujitsu, but... Claudio Puelas looks yeah. awful. But this is this is the now the thing that I've learned, okay? Claudio Puelas was off two and a half years, came back much better version of himself. Nick Negamarianu is off for almost three years, he comes back much better version of himself. Yargis Danho comes off a three-year-long layoff, looked like a much better version of himself. If you're green and you're inexperienced and you look like shit three years ago, the best thing you can do is hang in the gym. You don't got to be fighting all the time, taking damage, learning these lessons, you know, making your record look bad. You got to be in the gym, you got to grind, you got better, and you're capable of doing that so with Rachmanov that's what we're doing in Prezeris oh well he's been off for two years because of the suspension and he's almost 40 it's like man I don't know I, I don't know if I would want overexposure there but I could see the fight going the distance regardless so again at that plus 110 and yeah you didn't buy into that livid bullshit and I did and I was wrong you were right on that one and so when you the, mentioned uh, everybody's on Rachmanov yeah. right now I was like mm-mm PTSD, yeah, <laughs> I could I could see myself putting them on the low end parlays, yeah. deep at the bottom. You know, we want action on every fight. We're gonna take a shot there. The prop side of things, I like that a lot better. But there's like a there's like a sneaky thing where it's like, do not write off Prezeris on the yeah. basis of he looked like shit his last fight. He's a natural 55er. Um, the USADA ban. He's 40 years old. Like all of that causes you to just r- write a guy off. That's what gets you in trouble. And so for that reason, I'm just gonna be a little more uh, conservative here. Uh, last thing I'll say before we move on, I think Preserves probably put together the most sneakiest and quiet eight-fight winning streak inside the UFC before he got snapped by Nardiev. Quick names I'm going to throw out, Valmir Lazaro, JC Cottrell, Gilbert Burns <laughs> back in 2016, Josh Berkman, Mads Bernal, Desmond Green, who is probably in life in prison right now, uh, Zach Cummings, and Bartosz Fabinski, and then ends up getting uh, that uh, winning streak snapped by Ishmael Nardiev. All right. Let's move on to the next fight here. This is, I believe, the main card, or sorry, the, the prelim headliner. We got Danilo Marquez going up against Kennedy and Zetsuku. My arch nemesis, Danilo Marquez. Uh, I just don't know how he is 2-0 inside the UFC, but here we are possibly looking at going 3-0, uh, taking on short notice uh, fighter Kennedy and Zetsuku. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, What's his name? Sorry. Danilo Marquez was originally scheduled to fight Ed Herman. Ed Herman posed out in steps Kennedy, especially with Kennedy coming off that big win at UFC 259 as a big underdog against, excuse me, Carlos Alberg. Crazy fight, back and forth fight. Kennedy and Zetsuku showed the heart uh, of a fighter, was able to, you know, pretty much endure everything that Alberg was throwing at him, and then eventually comes back in that third round and finishes him there. So good win for uh, and Zetsuku there. But uh, this is a this is an interesting fight that he has ahead of him against Danilo, who is going to be looking to take this fight to the ground. Uh, at one point in time, I believe he was the jiu-jitsu coach of Shogun Hua, and that just lets you know what the, what the hell we're dealing with here. Uh, and a black belt under Damian Maya as well. So uh, I've always, you know. 
you know, I've had a little bit of a, a hatred for the guy for some reason. I just have no idea. I just don't think that he is truly a UFC caliber fighter, but he's 2-0, so who am I to say anything? Uh, with that said, I think he's going to have a tough time grounding Enzechukwu here. I think he's going to have to deal with the strikes of Enzechukwu. Uh, I think Kennedy will be able to light him up uh, as long as he keeps this fight uh, in the standing position. He should have a ton of success, as I don't think that Marquez has much or anything behind his punches. I truly thought that Rodriguez was going to be the guy that was going to expose Danilo and knock his ass out, but it seemed like Michael Rodriguez was completely frozen. He was uh, scared of the the takedown attempts that were coming his way. He was just completely gun shy and just did not let any of his strikes go. Uh, on the on the flip side here with Kennedy, I don't think that we'll see that hesitancy from Kennedy. I think that he'll trust his athleticism, his strength, and his ability to keep the fight vertical, and then from there go out there and really put his hands together and knock out Danilo Marquez. I think I honestly think that Enzechukwu gets this fight done relatively quickly. I think I, I really don't think that Marquez is going to be able to handle the power that Enzechukwu is bringing to the table here. And I like Enzechukwu by KO plus one eighty five. I would even go as far as saying Enzechukwu in, uh, in round one at plus four hundred. I, I don't think Marquez is good at all. He just has that takedown. If that takedown doesn't work, I think he gets absolutely lit up here, and that's exactly what I think is going to happen. So I, I do have my hesitancies with Kennedy. I still do feel he is quite green. I still do feel he needs to go out there and show some more improvements, but he has so much athleticism and so much explosiveness and so much power that he's been able to carve out a decent spot for himself on this roster. And he should absolutely demolish a fighter like uh, Danilo Marquez, even at this point in his career. Otherwise, I don't think he has a very bright future at all. But uh, I am going to give him the benefit of the doubt here. I think he gets it done. It could be my bias in terms of not liking Marquez, but I do, do think that... Uh, uh, Kennedy has his way and in the first round. So I'll be looking at, like I said, KO plus 185 and round one plus 400. How do you see this one going? I have no idea how Daniel Marquez is 2-0 in the UFC because, again, he's another guy. He makes his debut, and he's coming off a two-and-a-half-year-long absence. Guys who fought, he lost to Myron Dennis on the regional scene. He's not good. This is not going to good, go good for him, even though he's fighting Katis Abragimov. And it's like, nah, man, he just, he gets a hold of that clench. He's able to get the fight to the ground. And w once he's on top, he's got some smothering top control. Like, he's very heavy. You know, these guys aren't going anywhere. Then you get the Mike Rodriguez fight where he goes in and uses a jiu-jitsu once again, gets the fight to the ground where he's very heavy on top. You you nailed it 100%. Rodriguez looks super deflated. Like, I don't want to say he quit mentally in there, but you can see the first couple takedowns he would get back up and he would work so hard to get back up. And as soon as he got back up, he'd get taken right back down. He'd like... Just exhale and be like, ugh, like accepting it. He's accepting it. It's like, man, you got to keep working. This guy could have suspect cardio. He could be chinny. We have seen his last professional loss. Oh, sorry, before the Myron Dennis split decision, he'd been knocked out by six and six opponent, like a minute and a half in the round. Yeah. It's like, yeah, his striking is non-existent. His, his wrestling, it's, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to say it's not bad uh, because it's mostly jiu-jitsu style takedowns, but he, he's getting the fights to the ground. But it's like he can only win the fight one way, get this fight to the ground establish top control and hold you down that's it fish for the submission if he has to but it's so funny so he shoguns who is jiu-jitsu coach damian Maya is his jiu-jitsu coach damian Maya is coaching him uh in this fight he's gonna corner him and uh and then he's on record before the fight he's just like i'm gonna use my jiu-jitsu to win this fight it's like no shit you're gonna win your jiu-jitsu yeah. what other skills do you have because as far as i'm concerned i don't think you do have any other skills clearly you know how to do jiu-jitsu clearly uh, if this fight hits the ground absolutely now on one hand with kenny and Shku, you could say, geez, Darko Stosic took him down four times, but his get-up game was pretty good in that fight. And again, he's so young, he's so green, he is improving. Once this guy ties it all together and figures out how to use an 83-inch reach, people are going to be in a lot of trouble. 
at a Florida's MMA, I know they're investing a lot of time into him. And again, he's another guy that benefits from the fact of having a near two-year-long layoff coming to the Carlos Olberg fight. So Olberg and his coaches specifically picked out Kenny and Jakub. Remember that? They got a list. Fight whoever you want. You're Izzy Adesanya's buddy. You're a male model. You're on like uh, The Bachelor New Zealand or some bullshit. Like their version of The Bachelor New Zealand. It's like this guy, the UFC wants him to be a star. So they say, pick anybody you want. And he picks Kenny and Jakub. Only here's the thing. Kenny hadn't fought for 18 months. And the improvements that he made. Mind you, Colo Solberg did shit kick him for the first three minutes, but his chin was very solid. He faced all the adversity he faced in that. He took it in stride. And as he's getting teed off on, he'd squeeze one counter in, and my God, the guy's got power. He was getting Olberg's attention. The second Olberg tired, it was like, oh, Kennedy's just bringing it on him. Cardio looked good in that spot. Improvement from the, from the Paul Craig fight, let's say, where he was seriously tired and compromised in that third round before getting submitted. All good stuff for Kennedy. And again, I think he's fighting a, a decent enough level of competition. But what worries me here is that a very simplistic game plan probably could have a lot of success against him. And that they're in the small cage, the apex, small ring. It's not going to really take Daniil Marquez all that much distance to cover to get a hold of him and get him up against the cage. And what we did see in his fight with Mike Rodriguez, Mike Rodriguez, tall, long guy, unable to use the reach at all and as soon as he gets smothered up against the cage this guy is strong marcus is strong he's a big body yeah i know he's got good leverage and he just he just wears on you up against the cage it's not pretty it's not the kind of style that's going to make you a whole lot of fans but it is effective i will give him that so again on a prop side of things if i go three for 12 on my straight up picks and get blown up i want to know i'm covered on the prop side of things and looking at this one that over one and a half at minus 170 looks good to me i know what you're saying with kenny's got the power and he might be able to go out and get that tko for sure but daniel's gonna have to tire himself off he's not gonna strike with them how do you knock out a guy that is unwilling to strike with you all he's gonna do is spam into the clinch and up against the cage that at the very least is gonna buy him around and a half if daniel springs the upset it's almost certainly gonna be on takedowns top control grind this guy down maybe a late submission like the mike rodriguez fight but more than likely just grind the life out of you so i'm not trying to chase that two and a half but the over one and a half at minus 170, I think it's a pretty pretty fair tag. And it should cover you on either side of whoever wins. And as much as I'm worried about Daniel Marquez, and I think Paul Shaughnessy, who I have just the most respect in the world for, is taking Daniel Marquez. And I, I can see it. I just can't. I hate the guy. Like, I don't hate him personally. This, this style is so just, uh, he's got no skills. He's got such a one-dimensional skill set. And I know what people are saying. Cody, you like Bartosz Fabinski. How are you going to say you like Bartos and not like this guy? And that's an excellent question because Daniil goes out there and grinds out a win here and, uh, and does the exact same thing he always does. He might convert me to a believer, but as of now, it's like Kedis Abragamov, slow Mike Rodriguez. Come on, show me a little more. <laughs> Kennedy is Kennedy the guy, but it's more. It, to me, it's more. So that's showing me more and that's what I want to see. Shout out to Einstein XMMA here saying Danilo Marquez by decision at plus 550. Not too bad of a line. You could definitely not, get away that's with not it. at all, man. It really is. If you're making that play and you think, oh, they're not on my side, it's like, don't care what we think. That, that's a solid play, has a chance of winning. It's that, you know, we try to play out what's the most likely scenario. Not if they fight 10 times because it's cash. Absolutely could cash. But more likely, I really do like the improvements from Injuku, whereas Marquez is kind of that same guy. It's effective, 
but he's just the same guy time and time again, right? Uh, Marquez is actually going to be an inch taller than Kennedy once they step inside the cage, he's which is another guy. intriguing factor in this fight. All right, let's get to the main card here, a fight that I think is going to give us violence, and I would be kind of shocked if we see Cody come out on the decision side here. We got McConnell <laughs> going up against Jay Herbert. In terms of odds, we got Chalk on McConnell as expected, minus 235 and then plus 195 on the Englishman, uh, Jay Herbert. Uh both these guys are pretty much all action almost all the time. Jay Herbert, both of his finish has, finishes have come uh, via strikes, obviously, last time around against Francisco Trinaldo. And a fight where he put Francisco Trinaldo in all types of trouble, especially against the guy, you know, in Trinaldo, who's never really been never been finished, like we said. Obviously, uh, he was getting lit up by Salikov in his last fight, but not often you're seeing Trinaldo get uh, pummeled around like that. And then earlier in his career, we saw Jay Herbert go out there and get knocked out by Reese McKee. With uh, Hanato Maikano here, his durability is a huge question mark, which absolutely puzzles me in terms of people that are willing to actually pay the chalk on Moicano in this spot, even though he should win. I'm hoping that it looks like the Demir Hadzovic fight, where he just takes him down, goes for the submission. That should be his easiest pass to victory here, right? Jay Herbert's takedown defense leaves a lot to be desired. I think that will definitely see Moicano take advantage of that. But if he's not able to sub him and this fight stays into this in the striking realm, Herbert could absolutely put a whooping on him because he does have a lot of clean, clean, straight, crisp strikes down the middle that could definitely catch Moicano in this spot. And he's actually going to be the bigger fighter in the cage once they actually step in there, which is very surprising to me because I've always uh, seen Moicano as that long, lanky guy. But then again, the majority of his career in the UFC was spent at 140. Recently, he's been up at 155, and Jay Herbert is naturally a 155er as well. The spot that I like here the most, though, the under two and a half, man, minus 145. I think that's an absolutely great line for both guys that have durability issues and clear paths to victory on both sides. If Moicano drags this fight to the ground, I'm almost certain that we'll see Moicano pull off a sub. If this fight stays on the feet, both guys have a really good chance in terms of knocking each other out, but I think more so on the uh, on the Herbert side. I think Herbert could definitely lay the, lay the smack down on Moicano if this fight were to stay on the feet. So in terms of props, like I said, under two and a half, Moicano, or sorry, under two and a half, minus 145, Moicano by sub plus 180, not so bad. Herbert by KO plus 385, not so bad. But the ones that you guys want to side for me here, I'm going to be going under two and a half, minus 145, and then Moicano by sub at plus 180. How are you seeing this one, Cody? Very similar. I got the Moicano Herbert under two and a half, minus 145. We're definitely in agreement there. Herbert springs <laughs> the upset here. Yeah, dude, he's got a 77 inch reach, man. He's got a five inch reach advantage over Moicano. He's got 10 pro wins, eight of which are by knockout. Like, yeah, okay, he's got a path of victory over a guy in Hanato Moicano who, again, I think the narrative on him is that he's potentially chinny. If Moicano wins, he could knock you out. He can submit you. He's a high-level BJJ black belt. He's got a nasty rear naked choke. And just like the Hadzvik fight, you got a one-dimensional guy who's very dangerous with the power striking. Take him down. Neutralize him. Submit him. Perfect. He wanted to do that against Rafael Faziv. Faziv's just so strong. His hips were so yeah. goddamn strong. He couldn't. But you see the game plan in motion both times is not strike with these guys. It's take them down. When it fails to yield any results against Faziv, he's forced to strike. Doesn't end up well for him. But man, he landed some good shots in those exchanges all the same. He had Fiziev kind of stunned, kind of rocked with one of them. That same shot on Herbert Burns, I would think, sorry, uh, Her, uh, sorry, Herbert anyways, puts him down. That, the, the, the fight with Trinaldo, you know, that punch that lands, it's like on the forehead and he just melts like cheese onto the canvas. And Herb's like staring at him like, doesn't know what to do. <laughs> Dan Hardy in the background. <laughs> I fucking hate Dan Hardy, by the way. I'm so glad the promotion's rid of that asshole. But, uh, wow. but all the same, like I understood why he was upset in the moment. It was a bad stoppage, right? But still, like your job's not to protest this in the moment, pal. Um, 
It's just the shot that lands, it was like, ooh, that's not great. The Rizmi Key knockout, minute 28 seconds into the first round. It's like, oh, geez, that's not great. Maybe he's a bit of a killer, be-killed guy. I guess Trinaldo. Trinaldo's 40 years old. Trinaldo's a lot older. And Trinaldo's a little bit one and done with his striking. He'll throw like one, maybe one, two at a time. I think Mike Conor's going to be a lot faster. He's got the wrestling advantage. He should be able to put a bit of a pace on him. That under two and a half looks good. Whoever wins this fight, it looks good. Now, I thought, geez, I think Mike Conor might knock him out. And it was plus... 240 and then i seen me you know what maybe he's gonna i think it was plus 150 plus, and then I, plus five fi- oh sorry are you talking about this fight or the no the, fight? yeah sorry this fight here moicano by knockout is 150 plus five plus 550 on the knockout eh and the submission yeah. you mentioned was plus two or sorry plus 180 is 180 for submission yeah see what, what i ended up putting down was the inside the distance because i can see him doing both on one, one hand five. Yeah. yeah on one hand he's got the uh he's got that submission game the submission looks good and if he's able to take him down and take the back then maybe he's going to be able to but herbert's chinny he has two pro losses they were both by knockout uh he has not fought in a little bit of time now if he gets taken down and he ends up getting mounted or he ends up get, you know getting flattened out he'll just as easily get tko'd and again some of those shots that hit fazeev he just fazeev took them sure but herbert's not going to and so here's the thing with hanato moicano right i'm uh, I love all these guys that step in the cage. You're the man. However, I call them out if you lost to a shit guy or you beat a shit guy. And I'm the first one to say when you lose to a good guy, no big deal, my friend. You test yourself against the elite level. I will never fault a man for that ever in my life. Hanato Mukano's losses are effectively to Hafel Fazeev, who's one of the top five strikers in the division. Chang Sung Jung, who's a fucking legend, who's a top five striker in the division, and apparently can wrestle like a motherfucker too. God damn, I didn't see that coming into play. You got Jose Aldo, a former world champion. He's one of the best strikers in the division. And his other loss is Brian Ortega, who's the man. Uh, and Moicano was up two rounds. That was a much different version of Ortega than the man you see before you now, but all the same. He's up two rounds against Brian Ortega. He also shows wins over Calvin Cater, right? Cub Swanson. Like, he's this is not the same ballpark as, as Herbert. Herbert's playing yeah. softball, and this guy's playing in the major leagues, and in yeah. fact, cutting it in the major leagues. So people say, he's cheating, man. Watch out, he's cheating. And sure, Herbert could knock him out. It is MMA. But, you know, Fizayev, Chang Sung Jung, Jose Aldo, she. They'll make you look cheaty, man. Those yeah. guys knock out, have collectively knocked out many human beings. Um, if I'm going to give him a pass there, and I am kind of giving him a pass there, his body of work is just outstanding. And then so his pre-fight interview, he's like, you're going to see uh, me at my best. You're going to see me at my best was like his whole thing. You're going to see the best version of me, but me at my best. And right away, I was just like, oh, him at his best means he's taking him down. <laughs> like, he knows it. He knows maybe maybe I don't want to get hit. Maybe I am chinny. But beyond that, how do you protect yourself? Do you work on your striking defense? Do you, okay, uh, I got I to gotta keep my hands up more. I got I to gotta move my head. More. No, take him down. Best way to avoid getting hit. Take him down. Take him down. And yeah, maybe the sub's live then. I could see him getting a TKO as well. And so for that reason, I would take that plus 110. But if you don't want to get greedy... Just take the under two and a half here. And again, a very a, a pretty decent price tag at uh, minus 145 for that. So I would take that first and foremost. And then I'm leaning towards that uh, Moicano inside the distance for a little plus money as well. I think the UFC knows exactly what they're doing by making this the main card curtain jerker because it's definitely going to have that violence that should be able to keep the the audience, at least the casual audience, tuned in for the rest of the card. All right, let's move on to the next fight. We got Nicholas Dalby going up against Tim Means. Both guys were scheduled to fight somebody else. I believe Dalby was supposed to fight Sergey Kandoshko, and Tim Means was scheduled to fight, uh, can't remember off the top of my head, but both of their opponents fall off and they get scheduled to fight uh, this, this weekend. We got minus 135 on Tim Means, plus 115 on Dalby. 
Dalby. I did see Tim Means open up around minus 200, and there's been a ton of Dalby love coming in, which has brought him down to a minus 135 favorite. And I complete, I don't really understand it other than the fact that if you truly think that Dalby can go out there and knock out Tim Means, then sure, probably he wins this fight. But I see this as a, as a means fight pretty much all around. I think he absolutely lights up Nicholas Dalby on the feet. I think that he can invade the big shots of Dalby. Dalby, not a story of crazy knockout artist. Obviously, he was knocking out guys on the cage where you're seeing, but whenever he comes over to the UFC, he just can't uh, manifest those types of finishes, at least uh, not as of late. And uh, yeah, it just doesn't seem like he's going to have the skills to keep up with the output and volume that Tim Means is going to be putting on him. I just need for me to be like lock of the night sure on Tim Means. I would need him to be like uh, distance himself a little bit more from those knockouts and those like, you know, getting rocked and dropped by Daniel Rodriguez and all that type of stuff. I need to distance himself a little bit. It reminds me of when I was so high on Gavin Tucker, but didn't bother taking a shot on him against Dan Ige because I want him to kind of distance himself from the knockouts. And then obviously we saw what happened with Ige and Tucker when they, when they squared off. Uh, Means is probably one of my more confident spots on this card, but I am having a little bit of a trouble in terms of actually pulling the trigger here. I do think he wipes the mat with Dalby, honestly. I don't think he knocks him out. I think he plays a super safe game like he did in the Mike Perry fight. The difference between the Mike Perry fight and this fight, though, is like a lot of people would be like, oh, his chin is fine. He won 15 minutes with Mike Perry. But like all Mike Perry had in that fight was that first takedown that he landed in the first round. And then after Tim Means was, got up, it looked like Mike Perry was completely deflated, not to mention that he missed weight by like six pounds or some shit. Um, it, he was just a walking punchy bag at that point. He, he didn't have much power on his shots. He was very you know, lackadaisical in his approach. And Tim Means was able to just stay on the outside and pick him apart. I think we'll see more explosions and at least some more resistance here from Nicholas Dalby, which makes me sweat it a little bit more on the Tim Means side because he could definitely get clipped with something and then get put on wobbly legs and Dalby follows up with something there. But as long as Tim Means stays disciplined in this fight, he should be able to light up Dalby, like I said. I think he's going to stay on the outside, not overcommit on any crazy combinations, what doesn't, which doesn't lead me to believe that he's actually going to knock out Dalby here. He needs to fight a clean fight, super disciplined. You know, don't be, you know, uh, uh, falling over your punches or anything like that so you don't get countered or, or anything. And even if the, the takedown attempts come from Dobby, I think that will see Tim Means actually shut those off and keep this fight in the vertical range where he's going to have the most amount of success. So the spot that I'm liking, uh, the over over two and a half minus 200, a little bit juice. But even Tim Means by uh, decision is a spot that I like the most. Plus 205 on that. I love that line. I'll definitely be putting some money on that. Maybe not lock of the night deep on there or anything like that. But I do think that we have some solid value there at plus 205 on means by decision. How are you seeing this one? Yeah, you know what? I think either means walks right through him and looks like a million bucks and you're 100% right and he is lock of the night material and everyone wishes they put more money on him or he fucking pulls a Tim means and shits the bed again. Because we have seen that time and time from Tim. He's so slick. He's such a high operator. His striking is... When it's when it's on point, it's second to none, man. You know the wrestling defense. He, a guy can actually wrestle pretty good, decent decent submissions. But his cardio doesn't seem to be there. His durability doesn't seem to be there. And the more guys can pressure him, the more guys figure out how to eventually break him. And uh, you got to walk through hell in order to do it. Very few guys go out there and put a beating on Tim Means, <clears throat> pillar to post, bell to bell. But like, if you can break this guy and get through that first round, maybe the first you know round and a half, uh, you certainly do see a, a much different version of Tim Means. You nailed it yourself, dude. Mike Perry, right? The Mike Perry fight. Perry misses weight by six pounds, okay? Shows up looking awful. Is on Twitter saying how he thinks he's going to die from the weight cut leading up to it. Is cornered by his pregnant fiance, whom he met at Arby's three months prior. 
Like this whole, this is not supposed to go good for Mike Perry, and certainly it does not go good for Mike Perry. But the first three minutes, yeah, he takes Tim Means down. He looks pretty good. Tim Means gets up after that and puts a, a great performance on. But partly of that is well, Mike Perry. Now you look at the Leonardo Steropoli fight. Tim Means is getting starting to lose the striking exchanges of all things. So he relies on his own offensive wrestling in order to neutralize Steropoli, who's, you know, had very little success other than beating an aged legend in Tiago Alves once upon a time in the UFC. Steropoli hasn't really given a great account of himself, and yet Means needs to offensively wrestle in that fight. It's the other one. He looked great against Daniel Rodriguez for the first three three minutes, and then D-Rod took his best shots, returned fire, knocks him out at the tail end of the first round. Only the bell sounds, so they allow it to go to a second round, and then in the second round, he gets rocked again, seriously, and then gets caught in the standing guillotine choke. The Nico Price fight, caught in the first round, knocked out. The Bilal Muhammad fight, he beat the shit out of Bilal Muhammad in the first round. Second and third round, Bilal Muhammad just kept coming at him and worked him over. So even though he's a better striker than Dalby, I believe his wrestling is not, I mean, it's not, he's not a better wrestler than Dalby, but his takedown defense should be good enough to, uh, to keep the fight standing for the important periods of the fight. His submission defense is good enough to keep him outside of trouble. The the one advantage that Dalby has is the cardio and the durability. And I think that those two things could play massive dividends for him. Keep in mind Nicholas Dalby, because this is I, I, this is interesting enough. He got dropped by Darren Till, but he comes back like a motherfucking banshee in that third round. Till broke his collarbone, but you had 61 strikes landed by Dalby in that third round, and he gets a 10-8 round. He got dropped by Zach Cummings. He got dropped by Peter Sabata, and he got dropped by Jesse Ronson. None of which of those guys are really known as power punchers. Ronson's a good striker. He's a natural 55er. Peter Sabata's a BJJ black belt team planted either under Dean Lister out of Germany. Uh, Zach, Zach Cummings is, you know, a herky-jerky Midwesterner who can certainly crack, but he's not a power puncher. And uh, Till is a power puncher, fair enough. So he's been knocked down four times, but he's never been knocked out. So that's the thing with him. You can hit him, you can hurt him, but he just keeps coming at you. You really got to figure out a way to put him away. And Ronson's able to do it, but he tests positive for steroids afterwards. So again, you give Dolby a bit of a pass. With Means, Means could have success in the first round. Means could hurt him in the first round. Means might even be able to knock him down. But Means better hope he puts him away. Because if you got a second and a third round Nicholas Dalby, he is going to keep coming at you. And I know people say this at Cowboy Oliveira fight. They're like, man, that was a robbery. He got saved by the, the, the referee in the third round. And he did. But... When he stands up, did Dalby look tired? No. He just swarmed him immediately. His cardio looked really good. The Daniel Rodriguez fight, again, he has to battle back adversity. I thought he lost that fight, by the way. But he had to battle back adversity against a taller ranger man. And he just keeps coming. That's what wins in the fight is his tenacity. And the fact that he just refuses to go away. That kind of spirit might be able to break Tim Means. And then last but not least, we haven't seen the weigh-ins yet. But have you seen anything from Dalby on social media? Holy shit, man. He's in good shape. Like, clearly... He's taking this very, very seriously. He understands that this, he's 37. You know, him and Means are both a little bit older. He's got way less wear and tear than Tim Means. Maybe not. He, he, he uh, you know, battled severe alcoholism for a long time. So maybe his body's in worse shape than I think. But when you look at the current physicality of him, it's like, oh man, he looks really good. He's taking this seriously. And all he's got to do is make this dirty, grindy, get in his face and just try to break him. So, again, Tim Tim can make me look bad, and if he shows up, he knocks this cat out in the first round and, you know, praised the dirty bird Tim Means. And listen, Tim's a fan favorite. I enjoy his, his style. I enjoy him. Uh, you know, it wouldn't be the worst thing. But I just keep going back to this narrative, like, what's one flaw in Tim Means? He is breakable. And, like, what's one 
the best characteristic of a Nick Dalby. It's like he, he keeps coming at you and tries to put you away. So last thing I'll say is a bit of a fun stat, actually, is that the four losses that Dalby's had, Jesse Ronson, Peter Sabata, Zach Cummings, Darren Till, all four of them are southpaw fighters, and he struggles mightily versus the straight left down the pipe. Tim Means can fight out of a switch stance, but he is more of an orthodox type guy. So if you force him into the southpaw stance, he's not going to be as defensively sound. You're going to have to worry about that straight left. But you can pressure this guy. You can grind this guy. You can make this a dirty fight for the dirty bird and potentially spring something. So as far as the props I'm looking at, and again, I don't want overexposure on this. Dolby will be right at the bottom of the PRP. I don't have a whole lot of dogs that, that I'm going with, but I'm going to take Dolby. Um, but the two props that I would look at is a Dolby by decision, plus 230. Same thing as Blah Muhammad. Grind this guy. Make it dirty. Make it look better for the judges. It's a small cage. You're not going to have to chase him around. Maybe that Dolby plus 230. But you know what? If it doesn't make the decision, Dolby round three plus 1800. I know that's a more of a you play. Although you're not taking that. You got Tim Means. I understand. I understand. (laughs) But but yeah, it goes back to just Dolby's going to be there for three rounds. If he doesn't get knocked out, he'll be there for three rounds. He'll keep keep pushing. He'll keep going. And Tim, meanwhile, Tim teams to get tired. Tim T... You know how many times Tim's been kicking the guy's ass and then ended up losing? Like, even that Matt Brown fight. Do you remember that? He drops Brown in the first round. He's all yeah. over him. And then it's just Brown Brown returns fire, and instantly Tim curls up. It's like, holy shit, man. Stand your ground. He took your best shots. You took half of a good shot from him, and it's just like, done. Doesn't want to be there anymore. At 37, that shit don't get better. So I get he's on a two-fight winning streak, and all of a sudden people have forgotten about the Rodriguez fight, which was a classic Tim Means performance. They're just buying so much in this two fight winning streak. But I don't want to get burned. I don't want to have. Um, I don't want to have Tim on, on my top ticket. I don't want to have a bunch of exposure. I don't want to assume Tim should win because he's got the better skill set, and they get owned by him. So yeah, I'm actually going to go the other side. But you can pass. That would be a, a decent way to go as well. Uh, I do want to quickly answer my guy DXJC56's question. Yes, Cody will be dropping the PFL breakdown. He's actually going to be recording it as soon as we're done this. So we're trying to put the put the burner so we'll on this. We'll get episode. through. We'll get through. That. That's right. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to the next fight here. We got four fights left. We got Andre Feely going up against uh, Daniel Pineda. We got some chalk here on Feely at minus two twenty five. The return on Daniel Pineda plus one eighty five. Uh, finding it difficult to really find a spot on this fight as well. You know, I think that Feely ultimately will be able to keep the distance here and keep uh, Pineda on the outside. When Vili's jab is on, I think it's one of the best inside the UFC when he's able to just stick behind that jab and just keep opponents at distance. If he's able to do that here against Daniel Pineda, he'll find tons of success. But the crazy thing about Daniel Pineda is this guy is like either kill or be killed. I just want to get the the correct number here and how many times he's actually gone to a decision. So he actually has 41 career fights and only gone to a decision five times, and all five of those were losses. He's never won a decision. He has 27 wins, all by finish, 18 by submission, nine by knockout. Uh, but in terms of him getting finished, six submission losses, three TKOs, and then uh, six de- uh, five decision losses. Um, I think that this is going to be his sixth decision loss. I think that Feely will be able to just outstrike him, stay him on the outside. Even if this fight does get into the grappling realm, I think both guys uh, almost will cancel each other out. I think both guys are pretty good. I think uh, Pineda is a little bit more offensive, looking for the finish, trying to pass guard, whatever it may be, throwing up submissions off of his back. But I think he's going to have trouble finding that uh, that that submission here against a very talented Feely. It's crazy how long Andre Feely has been around the game because I remember uh, it seems like just yesterday that you 
Bry Faber and all these guys were touting him as being one of the bigger guys coming out of Team Alpha Male. Uh, and he made his debut way back at UFC 166 against Jeremy Larson. He knocks him out in the second round. That was October of 2013. Uh, so it's been a long time since Feely's been in. Obviously, when he gets a big step up in competition, he comes, you know, on, on the losing end, his big. Uh, his first ever or first loss in the UFC, Max Holloway. Can't really bang on him for that one. He ends up losing two fights there to Godofredo Pepe. Shout out to Pepe. Long time since I've heard that guy's name. I believe that was a triangle choke loss. There. Flying, flying triangle choke. Flying triangle dope. choke. Oh, it was yep. dope. Uh, and then uh, loses to Yair Rodriguez, Calvin Cater, uh, Michael Johnson, Sudi Yusuf, and then most recently Bryce Mitchell, where he just could not stop that, uh, that grappling onslaught. But I think he'll be well prepared here for Daniel Pineda. You know, a lot of people have a bad taste in the mouth from Pineda, especially last time around, especially if they backed him against Cub Swanson. Seeing him get knocked out in that second round was not a good look. But I don't think that Philly has that crazy knockout power that we're going to have to worry about him knocking out Daniel Pineda. But I think it's just more so the volume, the output, and the ability to stay behind that jab that should help him win this fight. So I'm going Philly, uh, but specifically Philly by decision, which is currently sitting at plus 230. Give me some of that because that's how I think he wins this fight. How do you see this one going down? Yeah, I would think his chin's good enough to take everything that Feely's got to offer him, but I'll never forget it. Well, I should forget it because UFC 149, head of Calgary, Alberta, was one of the shittiest cards. Oh, I was there live. Were you there? Oh, my yeah. I feel so sorry. <laughs> Dana apologized. I was like, I owe you guys one. <laughs> I Dude, owe they you had guys a great one. card lined up initially, though, and then it just fell, oh, it apart. fell apart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It absolutely fell apart. I wonder if you could find the original poster. It had I'm, Overeem I'm and shit right on now. it. Yeah, the original poster was so stacked. I remember uh, my girlfriend at the time worked at a Boston pizza, and yep. they would put up the posters all the time. And I was like, duh, I gotta have that poster. Let, <laughs> it me, looks let me give you some of the fights that were on that card. Tiago Alves versus Yoshihiro Akiyama. Sorry, these are the fights that fizzled out. Yeah, that Sexy Yama Alves sexy at the Yama. time. Uh, George Roop against Antonio Carvalho, obviously Carvalho, one of our fellow Canadians. Uh, John Jones against Dan Henderson was scheduled for this fight. Uh, Antonio Noguera versus Czech Congo. Jose Aldo <laughs> against Eric Cope. Shogun Hua against Tiago Silva. Michael Bisming against Tim Boach. Tiago Alves against CR. Bahadur Zada when he was still Bahadur Zada. Claude Patrick against James Head, whatever. Uh, Bahadur Zada against Chris Clements, which would have been a, a great fight as well. Banger, and then yeah. the one that I was looking forward to the most... Bibiano Fernandez come into the UFC against Roland Delorme, but Fernandez could not get his uh, contract issues figured out, and he was unable to make his UFC debut and still has yet to make his UFC debut. But yeah, that card was bad. Yeah, yeah. Well, the Roland Delorme fight, he was just like, all right, side of the UFC, boom, boom. And they're like, here you go. And he's like, $30,000. And he's like, do you know what, do you know what I get paid to fight on the Asian regional scene? Like, come on. So then he, he bailed on it. Good on him. Get paid your worth. But on yeah. that card, uh, Faber versus Hen and Brow was not a good fight. Uh, it was just leg kicks all day. Faber had nothing to offer him. Tim Vodras' Hector Lover was so bad. Oh, man. It was his debut, so right? Bad. It was yeah. His, yeah, it was his debut. They paid so much money for Hector. They got him in the co-main event. He was a sizable favorite and he loses a split decision over to uh, Tim Boach. Chai Congo versus Sean Jordan was so oh, bad. It God. was so bad. The whole card, man. James had sprung the upset over Brian Ebersol, who had some serious momentum going. That fight absolutely sucked. Uh, just brute. Anyways, the the one, why we're even talking about this was the one bright spot on it was Antonio Carvalho, our Canadian brethren, local Ontario guy, jiu-jitsu black belt, Sean not really known. Yeah, yeah, just... Oswald. Just one, yeah, Oshawa, one shot, Cole Cox, Daniel Pineda knocks him out cold. And I'll never forget that because I was like, this guy does not have a good chin. And and subsequent to that, you're right, man. Maybe he does have a good chin, but he seems to get caught in a lot more submissions once he gets tired. He just gets a lot sloppy. But 
the narrative of that like oh feely won't be able to knock him out to me it's like it embodies MMA. It's like anything can happen. Feely realizes he needs a big win. He's uh, rotated. You mentioned the fact he was a big alpha male signing. You know, he's one of these guys, the UFC was happy to have him. He had a good story. He was goo-goo for Paige Van Zandt. I think it really broke his heart when Cody Garbrandt got her and then she ended up leaving the gym. <laughs> but uh, the, the fact remains the same, right? He wins his debut. Jeremy Larson loses to Holloway. Arantes, he wins, loses to Pepe. Beats Benitez, loses to Rodriguez. Beats Hakron Diaz, loses to Calvin Cater. Beats Lobov and Bermudez. Miles Jerry he gets himself going. He never loses back to back, but he's failed to really get any type of sustainable momentum. He's never won more than two straight. He's never lost back to back. He's just kind of stuck in that same old rut. But I know coming off a loss to Bryce Mitchell in a fight that he gave a good account of himself, but the takedown defense was just, it wasn't there. And it was more so that, my God, Bryce Mitchell was relentless with that game, just over and over. Very strong physical guy, and he just stuck to it. But I had it 1 1 going into the third. Unfortunately, Feely wasn't able to pull up the third round. <clears throat> Surely he's motivated to get back on track. His cardio is really good. You don't see him get tired in those spots. The Bryce Mitchell fight, he fights all the way to the end, three rounds, and it's a hard-paced fight. The Charles Jordan fight, again, he loses the first round. He gets dropped in the first round, comes back hard in the second and third round. Cardio, not a problem. Third round, by far, Feely's best round. The Soji Yusef fight, he gets backed up heavy for two rounds. In the third round, he doubles him up in the striking numbers. He's backing him up. Jab, you mentioned he's got a good jab. He does. Just landing it very effectively. <clears throat> wins the third round against Sodiq Yusef. The only round of the fight he wins. This is a guy that does actually keep getting better. The fight goes on. Maybe a bit of a slow starter. And Pineda is the complete opposite. He has 27 pro wins. 27 wins inside of the distance. He has never won a fight by decision. And that's pretty telling. He's got to take you out. Or, you know, yes, he has lost five decisions himself, but he either takes you out inside the distance or he gets tired. Maybe he survives, maybe he doesn't, but uh, that that's the game out of him. Now, he's got the two fights for PFL that are no contest because he was on the Jews, and both of them are by finish too. He's a finishing, finishing machine. So he comes to the UFC, he beats Herbert Burns, I'm on him for there, catch the ticket. Uh, yeah, yeah, big underdog, but just Herbert Burns is such a quitter and has no cardio. So it's a very good fight for Pineda. Now he drops Cub Swanson, and this is where I give back some of that Herbert Burns money. I thought he would be Cub Swanson. Just because, to me, the narrative was kind of, Cub's old, man, and he's tinny, and he just seriously destroyed his ACL in a grappling match. He hasn't fought in almost two years coming into this Pineda fight. He's half the size of Pineda, despite the fact they're both 45ers, and Pineda puts the kind of pressure on guys that I think I don't, don't think Cub can take it anymore, but there's a reason why Cub Swanson is a legend, an OG of the game. Uh, he just he's such a live dog every time he fights, especially if you're going to give him a plus money tag. And in that fight, he gets his ass kicked the first two, three minutes which is very Pineda-like. And when Pineda fails to snatch up the knee bar and he fit, the leg kicks fail to come to fruition and Cub Swanson takes the big right hand, Cub starts to return with fire. And Pineda's not only gas, but like the punches are taking a lot of zap out of him. Between the first and second round, you can just see Pineda's not quite there anymore. The takedowns aren't as effective. The leg kicks are not quite as heavy. Uh, he's not moving as well. He's not moving his head as well. And he eats a three-piece combination and falls down. I could see something similar going down here. I think he could win the first round. So if you want to bet Andre Feely, probably look to bet Feely after the first round. You get a much better price tag on him. But beyond that, it's like, yeah, I think that early in the first round, those light kicks will work for Pineda. He might be able to take down Feely. He'll be able to back him up. He'll be able to take that jab and come forward. And uh, again, he's going to be able to counter the jab with the light kick. It's going to work for him in that first round. But I really do think that he'll start to fatigue as he normally does. And you'll see Feely inch his way back into it in the second round. If it's 1-1 going into the third, I am going to feel very good about Andre Feely. If it's 2-0 going into the third, 
for Pineda, it's going to be Greece because now we need to finish. And, you know, I, I could see that not coming together. But, <clears throat> again, I think he's got a chip on his shoulder. He's coming into his own. If you can tire this man out, put him into some deep waters and go for that uh, finish, I think it might be able to come together. But that remember how we talked about a third-round finish earlier in the night? You know, you, what you want is a Dolby third-round finish. It's plus 1,800. The flip side of that, I think I seen it at 900 for the Feely third-round decision. It's like half the price. To me, it's not quite as good. But if I did go Feely by TKO at plus 215, you know, again, this is a lot of it is on Pineda is going to blow his 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 gas trying to take Feely out. And Feely's just shown legendary durability. Yeah. He been, he's been finished twice in his career. Once by flying triangle choke. Oh, man. By Pepe, who was a known finisher. And the other one is Yair Rodriguez. It's a flying switch head kick. And he pokes Feely in the eye like two seconds right before. Feely like touches his eye to be like, what the hell? And he gets blasted with a fly switch head kick. So so I'm going to give him a pass. He's fought in big heavy punches before. Michael Johnson, Artem Lobov, you know, guys like that. Shaven Marias, whatever. Guys that can crack. And he lives to tell the tale. The Bryce Mitchell fight. Bryce Mitchell's got submissions for days. You know, look at all look at all the bad spots you put Charles Rose in. Look at the fact that he's hitting twisters in the UFC. It's like Feely's defensively very sound. He's able to get back up time and time again. Cardio checked out. That's all weapons he'll be able to use here. So again, I don't I don't love the prop side of this fight. However, if I had to select one that I like the most, I did end up going with the TKO for Feely at plus two fifteen. All right, looks like we're slightly on the opposite sides in terms of method of victories there. But again, this this is a questionable fight for me, especially given how violent Daniel Pineda fights normally are. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the, the the fight that we're both probably most excited about. We got sixteen and one. Ahani Barcelos taking on seventeen and two. Timur Valiev. We got some a little bit of juice on Barcelos minus two ten there. Plus one seventy five is the return on Valiev. It, it's difficult for me to pick a side here. I am ultimately on the Barcelos side, but I feel like that, that this is going to be one of those fights similar to the main event where people are going to be seeking the value on the underdog on Valiev here, but are still going to end up ripping up their tickets come fight night because I do think that Barcelos is just slightly better than him pretty much everywhere. I think the grappling is going to cancel each other out. I see this being a striking fight. And given both their striking styles, I like what Barcelos brings to the table a little bit more in terms of his Muay Thai combinations, finishing with leg kicks, looking like a young Jose Aldo in there sometimes, you know, whipping those uh, leg kicks at his opponents. And he throws with a little bit more volume than what Valia brings to the table, which is, you know, short bursts, uh, flying, spinning shit, likes to throw out there. Uh, he's one of those Mark Henry Dagestani guys, like Zab Zabit Magomed Sharapov, right? Likes to you know they have grappling don't get me wrong but more often than not you'll see them flash their striking out there more more often we saw value of you know needing to secure a victory last time around rely on his grappling taking martin day down time and time again grinding out that decision victory especially after coming off of that loss uh in his debut against trevin jones where he probably could have got that dub in that first round but shout out to chris tyone for letting that fight continue to go on and giving trevin jones the win in that second round but th this is a this is a, a weird fight for me in terms of like why would they match these guys up at this point in time right let these guys continue to build themselves up it reminded me of before you know, we found out that Hikaru Hamosh isn't all that he's made out to be. But when he went up against Saeed Nurmagomedov, that was another instance where we had two guys that were on the come up and they had to intersect, unfortunately. And one of them ended up losing. It was Hikaru Hamosh that night. But this night, I think it's going to be the Brazilian with his hand raised over the Russian. I think that Barcelos, again, stuffs the takedowns, 
keeps his fire on the feet, lands the better combinations, has the upside of a potential finish, as I do think that value can be cracked, as we've seen in the past for sure. But albeit he did throw everything in the kitchen sink at Trevin Jones, blew his wad completely, and then in the second round was ripe for the picking for Trevin Jones. But here against uh, Barcelos, I think we'll see Barcelos again, possible live for the fi uh, finish, but I do think that he's going to end up taking it to a decision by just outpointing him on the feet, getting the better of the grappling exchanges, whatever ends up there. But he's going to end up with his hand raised, plus 145 for the decision. Uh, for the decision, count me in. How are you feeling about this one, Cody? Yeah, I agree. Barcelos is my guy. I think he's got to, again, he's just so well-rounded. What what about his game do you not like? The guy's technical boxing, pretty good. Good power in his hands, good kick game, debilitating leg kicks, you know, really works that front leg, works the thigh, works the calf, Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, wrestling, pff, Brazilian national team member, good durability, never been knocked out, cardio, solid, RFA champion, like, I, I really like Rowney Barcellos. It's just the UFC's done him no favor on the matchmaking side of things. He fights guys that no one's ever heard of, right? Yeah. I mean, like, you know, casual fans have never heard of. And just non-ranked guys. It does nothing for him. At no point is he building himself up. At no point is as a title challenger or anybody in the top five or top ten give him the time of day. He's beating Kurt Holliban, no longer with the promotion. Chris Gutierrez, who's a bottom scraper of the top 30, let's say. Carl Suation, I don't even know why he was in the promotion. Yeah. Said Nurmagomedov, man, that's a tough fight. A tough fight versus a guy who's got no name in the UFC, he's not ranked, if you beat him, what does that do for you, right? If you lose to him, well, you lost the sight, you're done. That's a very tough, high-risk fight. It's a split decision. The buy semi probably uh, is a little bit out here, but I thought Barcelos won all three rounds. The first round, he's losing the first three minutes. He's getting hit with the spinning back kick, spinning back uh, fist, but I mean, he, he chops his leg big time at the end of the first, you know, clinches up, has success. Second round, again, success, takedown, back take. And the third round, if it is 1-1, he times that kick perfectly, gets him on the ground, and dominates him in the last two and a half minutes of that fight to make sure he secures a split decision victory. Great win. Tough task. You know what he's rewarded with to come out of that? You should fight Khalid Taha. Why? Why would I fight Khalid Taha? <laughs> but he does. He does. And then they give him Rob Bajvili, only it's three weeks after the Taha fight, so the commission's like, no. Then they offer him Rafael Sunsau, but Rafael Sunsau can't make the engagement. So they say, would you fight Marcel Rojo instead? <laughs> Why am I fighting Marcel Rojo? And now finally you get Timur Valiev. Here's the beef here. If you beat Timur Valiev, you beat a guy that's one and two in the UFC. If you lose to Timur Valiev, which is entirely possible, he's a very tough guy. Uh, it just sets you right on the back of the packing order. He's 34. When he signed his UFC, he was 32 and had a lot of promise. And now he's 34 with a lot of promise. But it's like, man, move him along. Guy can fight world-class competition. You know, Do you know what he would do to Sean O'Malley? Do you know what he would do? You know, give him Marlon Vera. Give him Jose Aldo. Give him somebody that's tough. Give him somebody with a name. I'd love to see the winner of this fight, Marlon Vera, to be honest. Yeah, it would, it, would be a, it would be beautiful work. And again, he should be fighting Dominic Cruz, but, well, he just doesn't have the name. We need Cruz to fight a guy with a name. So he ends up, you know, uh, even give him a Casey Kenny. I don't care. Give him somebody. Yeah. Give him somebody that's ranked. This is the best division in the world. I think he flatlines Cody Garbrandt. You know, like, I, I think, give him Rob Font. Like, give him a fight. No, no, no. Fight some guy from Russia who's a badass, who... No one's ever heard of, and it ain't going to do shit for you. And I'll move you up the rankings. So that that's kind of my beef here. But, yeah, I do honestly think he's got skills all over. And it's not to discredit Timur Valuev. I mean, as you talked about, he's in New Jersey. Uh, he, he looks to be in pretty good shape. He's got the striking. He's got some wrestling. He's got this and that. But I just think he's going to be a step behind. Outside of the speed advantage, maybe, he's going to be a step behind Ronnie Barcellos. And really, if you think about uh, his style, Timur Valuev, and the spinning attack and all this and that, it's like, oh, it's hard to predict. He's half as fast as Said Nurmagomedov. Said's 
a technique is a lot cleaner on the spins attack. Uh, he's a lot more unpredictable. What Valuev does is a little probably a little more orthodox. Punches are good. Nasty question mark kick. Nasty knee up the middle. This is all good. But you see, once he runs through his cycle of techniques, then he starts to become a little more predictable. Then he starts to become timed a little bit better. They gave him, this is this is the benefit of having Ali Abdelaziz as a manager. Not only do you make your debut as a 6-1 to one favorite over a local guy from Guam and Drevlin Jones, uh, when you lose and it's just like, oh shit, we need to get him back on track, you get the fights to get you back on track. They have a Martin Day. Martin Day's 0-3 in the UFC at that point. He's 0-4 now, obviously. Uh, coming off a knockout loss to Davy Grant, this should have been value of walk in the park. And the fact that he relied on his wrestling for the entire duration of that fight, he didn't He didn't want to strike. He got knocked down his last fight. He didn't want to throw the question mark kick. He didn't want to throw the knee. He wanted to get in there and grind and grapple. And against Barcelos, if you decide, I don't really want to strike, I'm going to grind and grapple, it's not going to go work for you. And when you're forced to now strike with him and you don't want to, he's going to knock you out. But what I actually ended up going with was Barcelos by decision, plus 130. I like it. I think he can sprinkle in the wrestling. I think he's going to hurt Valio. I think Valio is going to have to be defensively sound. And uh, Barcelos has a high ring IQ. Like He doesn't really force the issue. If he takes you out inside the distance, you know it comes naturally to him. But I think he's going to respect what Valio brings to the table. He's going to take maybe a round to figure him out. He's going to have to tire him and take him into some deeper waters. But that's where you see him have his most success, Barcelos, is when the going gets tough and he's got to dig deep and go to the well. That's when he's able to do it. He fights soft competition, doesn't have to go to the well, but that is within him. And Valiov, I think he's actually the opposite. His two pro losses, he lost as a 6-1 to favorite against Trevin Jones, and he lost as a 5-1 to favorite against Chris Gutierrez in a World Series of Fighting. The wins between that is a rematch with Chris Gutierrez, Max Koga, German fighter, uh, Jonas Lano Silva was a Brazilian journeyman, nice looking record. Bakbulat Magomedov, he lost to Josh Hill, right? So scary looking Russian record, maybe not the best guy going. Giovanni Saros, Tegra Costa. He he walks through lesser of opponents for sure. He should have walked through Trevin Jones, only it turns out Trevin Jones is a pretty tough guy. You know, he should have walked through Martin Dane. He did, but not as impressive as he should have. He supposed to walk through Barcelos? No, he's not. Barcelos is the rightful so favorite. I agree with it. And uh if uh, it, I'm gonna have Rowney straight up, but if I had to force a prop on this one, I'm going back to the decision well, and I would go Barcelos, Barcelos by decision, plus one thirty. Count me in on that. I'm right there with you. Hopefully he pulls it off because he definitely has a bright future, as does Timor. But one's got to win, and I think it's actually going to end up being Barcelos, and I'm glad that you're on that side as well. All right, Coleman event time. We got Oven St. Proof taking out uh, Short Norris, uh, Tanner Bozer. A ton of Short Norris spots on this card throughout it. But uh, OSP originally scheduled to fight Maxine Grishin. If I'm not mistaken, Grishin not able to make the fight due to visa issues. In steps Tanner Bozer, and uh, apparently he's been quarantining ever since his last fight, and he hasn't even been able to train uh, over these last couple weeks. Uh, but he still does step in here against OSP. OSP and uh, coming in as the favorite around minus 170 uh, plus 150 the return on OSP but I think that this is a good matchup for Tanner Bozer to get back onto the winning track with OSP he doesn't have too much volume to worry about so you know the Andre Arlovsky type of thing that's not going to happen here he's not going to have to worry about getting grapple fucked like Ilir Latifi sure you know OSP might be able to land a takedown or two early in this fight but I don't think that he's going to be able to find a submission and then I think that his cardio is going to start to get taxed and that's when we'll see Tanner Bozer start to take over with his you know volume style, leg kicking style, sticking and moving and staying on the outside. Uh, I, I like uh, Tanner Bozer in this spot. A lot of people are hopping off of his train because they got uh, you know pretty much screwed by him in their last two fights, especially if they were backing him. But I think that this is a great spot for him to go out there. Uh, and, and I think he actually outpoints uh, Bozer, or sorry, uh, Saint Pru in this spot. I'm going to be going with Bozer by decision around plus 160, plus 175. I think he just sticks on the outside, 
just beats up uh, OSP. Or I've definitely seen this narrative out there that I'll give a little bit of weight to. You know, people are just saying that Bozer's probably just pissed off from getting you know, somewhat screwed out of his last two fights. I thought he definitely lost his last two fights and he wants to keep the judges out of it, go out there and get a knockout, especially against a guy like OSP who could, you know, he has had durability issues and chin issues in the past. And I'm just not sold on the fact that Bozer has that knockout power, right? Like he finished Hafiel Pesola. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, that started with the knuckle straight to the eyeball that just uh, down Pesola in that fight. And then he followed up with some strikes there. Clean knockout against Philippe Lins. Probably one of the best knockout combinations I've ever seen. Uh, so good one for him there. But historically speaking, Tanner Bozer is not a knockout machine. It's just he's getting, you know, a couple here and there. And um, which is why I do believe that we'll, we'll see him go back to that classic Tanner Bozer style, stick and move, implement the leg kicks nice and early here, try to immobilize um, and same proof so that he can he can't get uh, you know heavy power shots off or get, even get any takedowns going. And that's when I think that Bozer will start letting go on combinations, ending with leg kicks, staying active, and taking home a decision victory. So I'm going Bozer and Bozer by decision. Like I said, around plus one sixty five. How are you seeing this one go down, Cody? Yeah, I got Bozer. It's like, a, but at some point you got to fully recognize that him versus Andre Arlovski is a minus three seventy favorite, and uh, it wasn't a great performance. He could have won the fight, sure, but they didn't give it to him. Fair enough. Loses as a fairly big favorite. Then you rebook him against Ilya Lativia as a minus one seventy five favorite. Again, close enough fight. You can make an argument he won it, but he didn't. And uh, now you lose as two straight favorite tickets, and now they're giving you an even bigger favorite price tag on Tanner Bozer or OSP. At some point, we got to recognize that maybe Bozer isn't an elite-level heavyweight. He's certainly the greatest Canadian heavyweight since, you know, God rest his soul, Tim Hag. But we're, we're very light on, like, Canadian heavyweights, and that's Bozer's yeah. issue. He's not training at ATT. He's not training at some gym, Sanford or AKA or Alliance or the MMA Lab or anywhere that's going to at least have some bodies for you to work with. He's training in a small local gym in Alberta where, you know, I, I suppose Teddy Ash and KB Bular are his top training partners. Like, you know, how's that going to go for you long term? And so he jumps into the UFC and has a lot of initial success, but you're seeing the limitations to him as things progress. So am I super excited to have a Tanner Bowser ticket? Not, nece not necessarily. But again, I think uh, this fight plays towards him for sure. I mean, he is the natural heavyweight. He's a mobile heavyweight. He's got those kicks. And I think he's going to come in here with a chip on his shoulder. I mean, when he knocks out Felipe Linz, it's like, oh, damn, nobody saw it coming. Nice knockout. And then he goes out and he knocks out Pessoa. It's like, oh, shit, Bozer, you're right. He's not a knockout guy. He's more of a decision guy. Likes to use the light kicks, likes to stay on the outside, and just likes to use more volume more than anything. But now two straight knockouts, people are talking about this guy's a credible heavyweight contender. They give him the Andre Arlovsky fight on the basis of those two knockout wins. And, uh, you know, just leg kicks. Respects Arlovsky too much. Now you have the Latifi fight. Taken down in the first. Taken down in the third. Second, he lets his hands go. Hurts Latifi. But it's the takedowns that cost him. He knows in this OSP fight now, it's not enough. Winning would be great. Means the win, very clearly. But winning, winning a stay on the outside and kick this guy's lead leg for 15 minutes is probably not enough. You're going to have to put some pressure on him. I'm tired of getting screwed by the judges. He thought he won the uh, Arlovsky fight, as I, as did I. He thought he won the Latifi fight, which I did not. But he believes he's win these fights, and they are very close. It's like, I got to go back to those days of knocking guys out. So if he comes a little bit aggressive, OSP, that's the key. OSP is a guy that at 38, he loves to fight a slow pace. If he can slow you down to a slow slog of a pace, then he's going to be a lot more dangerous. And again, when you look at the guys that attack him, uh, they're, they're having a lot of success. John Mahal Hill gives him no space, goes after him. That's how you get the job done. Ben Rothwell in his only other fight at heavyweight. Ben Rothwell stuck to him hard the entire time. He's ultra aggressive, just walked him down, landing at combinations at will. 
good performance. You know, again, Nikita Krylov, he brought the pain to OSP. Dominic Reyes, he definitely brought the pain to OSP, knocked him out with uh, the buzzer rang, so it's a decision. But I mean, there, there's there's about a quarter second left on that clock. Uh, OSP's knocked out. Those guys bring it to him. But you'll notice a lot of the time, like the Alonzo Menafield fight, Menafield just stood there and stared at him. That allows OSP to fight at a slower rhythm, and that is allowing him to get comfortable. But here are the two things where we just can't go with OSP. You go back to the Rothwell fight. He was initially supposed to fight Shamil Gamzatov. Gamzatov gets hurt. He draws Ian Kudalaba. Kudalaba gets hurt. They offer him a fight at heavyweight one week later, and he takes it against Ben Rothwell. The results are split. That's a ludicrous result. It was clearly a unanimous for Ben Rothwell. I don't know what the fuck the judge was thinking, but as I'm sure all of you know by this point, MMA judges is completely whack right so i didn't think he looked good there so he beats menafield and as much as osp looked good i a lot of that to me was menafield fought a terrible game plan and looked bad he's just so gun shy he allowed the moment to escape him and finally in the second round when he was like my leg hurts i'm just gonna bum rush me walks right into the classic left hand counter right that check hook so Hill, you pressure him. That's the game. You got to pressure this guy. But uh, a friend of mine, I, I can't, he told me, don't name him. But he had, before the Hill fight, been like, uh, OSP's legs cooked. He's got a bad injury. Um, his coaches are all very aware of it. Uh, do not bet him. Uh, in fact, I see you're on Domahall Hill. Bet a lot more on Domahall Hill. Uh, OSP's, he, he's injured, right? So I was like, okay, fair enough. Do you believe it? Yeah, I believe it. Why would this guy tell me that? But also, you know, you can't let too much shit get into your head. But then I saw the weigh-ins. And so here's the key here is that OSP has had, at that point, it would have been his 38th career fight. So that would have been his 39th career fight at that time. He had never missed weight once in 39 career fights. Fought at heavyweight once, right? But outside of that, he's a career 205 He is never. He's very professional. He's never missed weight. When he came in and missed weight, and then his coach is on record being like, I told him to shut the weight the weight cut down. His body wasn't reacting. And you know his legs hurt. And that probably hampered him from making the weight. That's all bad stuff. He's 38. It's all bad stuff. Now he's booked against Maxim Grishin at 205. But Grishin gets hurt. And what does the UFC do? You want to fight a heavyweight again? <laughs> no, no, he probably doesn't. But his body, his body's not reacting the same. He's a lot slower. Uh, he, he, I think he's injured. He's riddled up with injuries. He's 38 years old. He's coming back up to heavyweight. It doesn't. It doesn't seem to be going well for him. The one part where we're disagreeing is you think Bozer will go back to his decision ways, and I think he's live for a knockout. It's plus 250. That's part of the reason I'm going to give him the time of day on this one. Is it's a pretty sizable enough plus money play. But again, you see OSP and guys that are willing to go out there and attack him. He's not a great offensive wrestler. I know he's got the, the Von Pru choke, and people keep hammering that point home. Like if he was to take Bozer to the ground, it's like Bozer's too. 250 pounds man Latifi could take him down sure he's a Swedish national champion guy's very very strong he's very physical those guys in Russia enough said guys from Russia uh I I don't think OSP a guy that doesn't really blast a double he's more of a press you up against the cage and drag you to the ground and he's not going to drag a big heavy tenor Bozer I'm worried that Bozer hasn't been training I'm worried that Bozer's been in quarantine but Bozer also just fought a few weeks ago so physically he's going to be in okay shape and again, I just think, go out there, put the pressure on. And last but not least, if, if OSP does have a leg injury, if this is something that's compromised on him, the leg kicks will just completely take away his speed and movement. And he doesn't really have much movement to begin with. Now he's a sitting target. Now Bozer's going to touch his chin. And when Bozer touches his chin, he's going to topple over. So at 250, I'm willing to take a shot. Bozer's going to be the play. As far as a prop perspective, I would go uh, like the under two and a half for the Bozer, Bozer by knockout. It actually surprised me a little bit when I found out that OSP is 38 years old. I'm not sure why I was expecting him to be closer to that 33, 34 range, but 
here we are, 2021. OSP is 38 years old, which uh, definitely uh, surprises me. All right, let's move on to the main event here. Decent, or I'm not even going to say decent. This is a very good main event that we got between Suragon and Alexander Volkov. At this point in time, I always do want to remind you guys, the 180 of you guys that are in the chat right now, please do hit that like, hit that subscribe, show your boys some love. That's the best way to do it. Uh, like I said, Alexander Volkov, he's going to be coming in as a slight underdog here, plus 130. He's been getting some action throughout fight week, and we got Suragon at minus 150. I really like this matchup. It definitely will tell us a lot about both guys, uh, specifically on the Gone side, as this will be his toughest test to date. I'd say his toughest test up until this point has been Junior Dos Santos in terms of a guy that was, you know, a credible heavyweight, seemed to still have a little bit left in the tank, uh, and uh, but uh, he still was not able to deal with the power of Cyril Gone. Uh, Cyril Gon last time around did not make any fans in his fight against Jerzinho Rosenstrike, but you can't really blame the dude, man. I think the blame was should more so be on the Jerzinho Rosenstrike side of things because if Cyril Gon goes out there and zigs when he should have zagged or you know makes one little mistake, he's going to be staring up at the lights, lose half of his paycheck, and lose the momentum that he currently has going for him. Whereas Jerzinho Rosenstrike, we know all he has is that one-punch knockout. Like the, It's not often that you're going to see him go out there and win a decision of any sort. Uh, so I think that Cyril Gon played that fight as perfectly as you could play it. Go out there, do what you need to do to get the win, and that's what he did. Don't overextend yourself. Don't put yourself in harm's way. Go out there and beat the guy the way that you can. Here against Volkov, he can take a little bit more chances, right? Volkov's not a crazy one-punch knockout kind of guy or one-kick knockout kind of guy, so I think that he'll have more success in terms of showing more parts of his game, and I think the ultimate difference maker in this fight is going to be the speed. I think that Gan is going to be a little bit too fast for Volkov to catch him here. I think that he'll be able to use his in-and-out movement to get the strikes off and then get back out. I do think that Volkov is a better technical striker here, don't get me wrong, but it's going to be hard to be hitting, which you can't see. And I think that's what's going to be happening here with Gan being able to get in and out of the range. Uh, I think Gan has a slight reach advantage, but obviously the height isn't the advantage of Volkov, but again, Volkov is a big, big dude, and it's only been two fights now that we've seen him, you know, pack on that muscle and pack on that mass that he's had, you know, historically speaking, he would be a guy that's in the high 240s, mid-250s, but his last two fights, he's coming right in at that 265-pound uh, limit, you know, he's clearly put on some weight, put on some muscle, whatever it may be, and it's helped him out against guys like Walt Harris and, you know, the ghost of Alistair Orvim in 2021, but it's not going to help him in a, against a guy like Cyril Gaunt here, who used uses his speed to his advantage and we can definitely see how slow Volkov is going to be once these guys are start throwing down in the cage and I think that gone if he wants to he can I don't think he has a crazy grappling advantage here I do think he can land takedowns, but I don't think he's going to want to mess around in the guard of Volkov for too long. Like Volkov does have a, I believe he has a brown belt in jiu-jitsu. He is a little bit crafty off of his back at times. I don't see this being a Curtis Blades type of fight, but I do think that Gan's ability to mix up the case, or the fight, the whole MMA game, takedowns, clinch work, uh, sticking and moving, that should allow him to put together a solid uh, uh, workflow to eventually get a judge's decision, which I think he's actually going to get. So I do like the overs in this fight. I think both guys are very durable. I think we'll see a safe approach from Cyril Gan here. And I'm going to be taking Gan to win this fight via decision. Uh, even the overs here, I don't mind. Over one, uh, sorry, over four and a half, minus 120, don't mind that. Over three and a half, minus 140, don't mind that. Over two and a half, minus 190. Not bad either. I would take a shot on that too. But uh, the ultimate uh, prediction that I'm going to be giving you guys here is gone by decision plus 200. That's my favorite spot in this fight. I think he goes out there and bats a, a pretty much a per He might give up one round, but I think for the most part, he's going to go out there and outwork, outpace, and uh, pretty much just beat Volkov by decision. Are you going to give some more credence here to Volkov or are you on my side with the gone thing? 
Yeah, I'm on the, I'm the gun side too. The one thing I will give Volkov is that uh, you gotta watch out with Volkov, man. You cannot overlook at one very specific thing, my friend. His career seems to be in a rut. It's good. You know, picks up some nice wins. The Fabrice over Doom fight. Man, that Derek Lewis fight. Talk about a heartbreaker. You know, gets back on the win track. And Curtis Blade, you know, career high. I think it's a UFC heavyweight record. 14 takedowns. My God. And then Volkov sells his soul to the devil. And all of a sudden, he's got a full back tat. And he's been a completely different dude since he got that back tat. Now. Oh, man. 265. Big. Rangy. You talked about the fact that it's like, oh, he doesn't really have the most power. It is translating now. That teep kick up the middle, he used that his entire career. And now you see it just like really taking a lot of effect on guys. While Harris is kind of soft to the body anyways, but I mean, just neutralize him, hurt him, put him over. Uh, Alistair over him, yeah, he's 41 years old. He's currently released from the promotion. Uh, his best days behind him, but it's like you, you go out there and you put a very nice beating on them. So on one hand, it's like, well, you fought two guys that are kind of washed that is not all that credible. But then that's the same argument you make against Gagne. You know, well, he beat Junior Dos Santos, who then was released from the promotion. Rightfully so. It's just not the same guy he used to be. But you said... um Cyril Gunn didn't make any fans in that last fight. And that's where I disagree. I thought that was a great performance. It was a master class. Oh, masses. Was a, <laughs> Everybody yeah, but, 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 but I, no, they should shit on Rosenstruck and Rosenstruck's inability to engage. But how is that? How is any of that Cyril Gunn's fault? So again, when, even yeah, when you look, exactly. at, you look at the numbers, Cyril Gunn land 102 significant strikes and two takedowns. What more did you want him to do? You look at the round by round, he outstrikes him in all to, all five rounds, right? Including 23 to 6 in round two, 29 to 13 in round three, 29 to 10 in round four. How is this his problem? How is this his fault? You know what I saw? I saw a really fast jab. I, I saw a guy that was able to use his reach to every inch, which is something that's nice to see with bigger fighters. A lot of guys struggle with using that reach. He had a fast, accurate, snappy jab, good on the reach, good speed, five rounds, conserved himself really well. Didn't make any bonehead mistakes. Kicking game. He landed 46 kicks in that fight. 46. I can't fathom kicking anything 46 times. I didn't kick a pillow 46 times. Like, like this, and just absolutely blitzes him. So then I got really fascinated. My OCD probably kicked in, and I was just like, you know what? I really want to rewatch the Junior DeSantos fight. And in the Junior DeSantos fight, he absolutely debilitates that lead leg. Kick, kick, kick stays on him the whole time. Then you see Junior buckle off the leg kick. Uh, and then all of a sudden, Junior can't move. And then all of a sudden, the jab, straight jab down the middle, rocks him. Elbow puts him up against the cage. So when you look at the last fight with Rosenstruck, you see he lands 60, uh, 46 take to, or, um, leg kick. Sorry, Very nice number. You look at this Junior DeSantis fight, he lands 29 of 32. The numbers are great. Now, he only lands 13 head strikes against Junior versus the 29 leg kicks. And in the Yarazino Rosenstruck fight, he lands the 46 leg kicks versus only 33 strikes to the head. In both of these games, it's very, very centered around work that lead leg, stun him, stop him, and now they can't come at you. Rosenstruck can't explode with the big combination. His lead leg's done. Junior is now standing still, and he, he never moves his head to begin with. But now that he can't move his feet, he's a sitting duck, but I'm going to take away the leg. That's how he's going to get the job done here against Alexander Volkov. Volkov's got a shorter reach, but he's six foot seven. He's got long legs. He's a guy that's a little bit flat-footed, and that lead leg is almost on parade for him every single time. So again, we know that Gan might have this game plan of going out there and working the leg, but would that be effective against a guy like Volkov? Well, we know he's tall. We know the legs are there, but this is very interesting. See, none of these guys are trying to kick his leg. Overeem's not trying to leg kick. Wall Harris isn't trying to leg kick. 
Curtis Blades, Greg Hardy, Derek Lewis? Who in that arsenal would you consider would have good leg kicks? But again, when you just look at the numbers, right? Overeem, just on leg kicks, threw uh, five of them. Landed all five of them. Walt Harris, he only throws... Uh, he only throws four of them, but he lands all four of them. And then Curtis Blades, a man who is not known to have a leg-kicking game at all. He's a, he's a power wrestler. He goes 28 of 30 on the leg kicks. That leg's there all day. And so we keep talking about the jab, and maybe Cyril Gagne can maybe mix in a little bit of cage control and uh, the wrestling. I think he's going to chew the fuck out of his lead leg and immobilize him and then have success with all the other weapons. But it'll come with keeping Volkov off you. Because, uh, shout out to Hunter Man if you're watching, he makes a good point. No one's ever actually put Gan on his back foot. So it, can he counter? Is that jab going to be effective if he's not moving forward? That's an interesting question. That I don't know because I haven't seen it yet. He's absolutely right. So Volkov is an aggressive guy, likes to move forward. How do we neutralize that? Well, we've got a small cage. So if he comes forward and he's over-aggressive, press him up against the cage, right? Use cage control, try to mix in a few takedowns, but he's got a good get-up game. But beyond that, it's just like, you know how you can keep him from advancing all the time? Chew at that lead leg. And I think that's what Gon's going to go for. So uh, it could result in a late finish, but it's going to bank It's gonna bank stuff uh, prior to that. And so the over three and a half, a minus 140, I like that. We know that Gon's not going to overexert himself. He's not going to take too many risks. And with Volkov, you know, he's more of a volume guy than a quick finisher. Uh, he has finished a lot of guys, don't get me wrong, but they weren't quite the most durable going. And then the fight goes the distance is minus 110, but I'm not actually sure how I feel about that. I think I would rather just that minus, uh, the over three and a half at minus 140. Yeah, take the 30 points and save me seven and a half minutes of later part of the fight. Yeah, okay, great. If Volkov's leg really is compromised, maybe Surreal makes it happen. If Surreal's not quite ready for this level, then that's entirely possible. He's got, what, eight pro fights and he's headlining against Volkov? Like, tough spot. I agree. Uh, if he's not quite at this level, Volkov probably takes a little bit of while to get going on him. Over three and a half, sure. The fight goes the distance. Now that I'm looking at it on this page, I don't I don't think I would pull the trigger there. So the official prop I have for this one uh, is the over three and a half. Did you mention that gone by decision? I, I could see yeah. it too. I could see it Plus too. 200. But yeah, you know, a lot of heavyweight fights do go the distance. I don't love that narrative of like heavyweights going to heavyweights. But yeah. in this case, it's like you got a guy that's two, four, he's six, a six five or you got a guy that's six five 240 pounds versus a guy that's six foot seven and 265 pounds like they are big guys they do have some some underrated power uh i could see it go in the distance he could see gone getting that decision but as far as a one singular prop on this one goes i think the over three and a half seems safest to me shout out to my guy danny legs gone has never faced adversity in his career and you are absolutely correct my friend that's why exactly i believe a lot of people were backing Ghana in this fight believe in his potential i believe in his potential i believe cody believes in his potential as well but this will definitely give us all the answers we require to see how God, how far gone can truly take his career and whether he is actually championship material all right that brings us to the end of the show we pretty much have one segment left and that is pretty much everybody's favorite segment that is the uh three best prop bets but i do want to quickly announce the uh, cast for tomorrow's ultimate weigh-in show for you guys. There we go. We got my guy Jonah Schiffman, Jay Schiffy MMA on Twitter. Uh, he is one half of the FTN Daily Podcast. Uh, we had the other half on last week. Uh, our guy, I, uh, Frick, I, I can't believe I'm forgetting. Oh, Joe Kelly. Joe Kelly we had on last week. Uh, we're also going to have my guy John Martian. Uh, he has the Martian MMA Podcast. Uh, great, solid, sharp dude is there. And then lastly, we have my guy Uncle Wheezy, 
Uh, he just recently made his debut on Pop Sports Radio with my guy Brady DFS by the numbers, and he's been showing off some pretty good chops. So I wanted to give him a shot here on the Ultimate Weigh-In Show uh, so that he could actually, again, educate you guys. He's a very stats-driven guy, so I'm sure he's going to add a great uh, angle to the to the panel tomorrow night. So once again, make sure you guys join us tomorrow night, 9 p.m. Eastern, the Ultimate Weigh-In Show. Got a solid cast of guys for you guys, and I can't wait to break down the fights one last time with those fellas. All right. Let's get on over. You were going to add something, Cody? Well, I was going to say, Uncle Wheezy's pick, I always thought you should be banking on that heavy. That's the pick, man. He's the lock of the week. And if someone was shoeing of the week, that use the shoeing segment. <laughs> and then Jonas Schiffman, did that picture not look like our guy Guru in cartoon form? <laughs> was cr- when it first came out, I was like, no I way. See I see it. I see it. I see it. Doesn't it? God. Like Anyways, g- good. Hey, good looking cast, man. Be uh, looking For forward sure. to seeing some of those uh, thoughts on the post weigh-ins. But yeah, let's jump into our top three bets. God, I want to hit a three for three this time. Right? Absolutely. I do want to say also for UFC 264, I have a banger of a lineup for that ultimate weigh-in show. I just have one more person that I'm trying to confirm for you guys. But as soon as I can confirm that shit, you guys will find out. But I think it's probably going to be the best cast I've had to this point. All respect to my guy Cody on that first cast that we had when we did the first time. But We'll see what happens. I'm sure it might even blow his mind. All right, let's get into the three best prop bets for you guys. I'll kick things off as always. First and foremost, Rosa inside the distance, plus 145. I think he takes whatever James throws at him early in that fight. Then as James starts to slow down, Rosa will start to pick it up, whether it's with the punches, club and sub, or even taking him down and subbing him that way. I think he I think he subs him, which I think is around plus 210, but I'm not going to count out the ability for him to go out there and ground and pound him either and cast a plus 600-ish TKO prop as well. So I'd rather just be safe and take the inside the distance at plus money. Let's not get too greedy. Next up, we got Moicano and Herbert under two and a half at minus 145. I really love that spot. I think this fight's going to be an all-violent spot. Personally, I think it plays out as uh, Moicano taking him down, subbing him pretty much similar to that uh, Demir Hadzovic fight he had two fights ago. He really needs a bounce back, especially after getting knocked out by um, Rafael Fiziev last time around. And I think that this is a great opponent for him show- to showcase that uh, those chops. And even if he can't get Herbert down and keep him down, Herbert is definitely a threat in his own right in terms of the the striking aim that he has and the power that he has, especially considering the durability issues that we've seen from Moikan as well. So under 2.5, minus 145, Milaiki. Lastly, I like gone by decision, plus 200. I think he goes out there and sticks to a solid game plan, very disciplined approach, mixing in a couple takedowns, some clinch work, sticking and moving. Like Cody said, he definitely brought in a good caveat here, which is the leg kicks, just work on that lead leg of Volkov, take off the pop and power of his shots, and then just go to work with your hands afterwards. But I do like gone over five rounds at plus 200. Cody, your turn, my brother. All right, we're going to start with our, uh, you know, minus 170 play. We're going to go Marquez Njaku over one and a half. Again, I think we're covered on both sides here. Uh, Kennedy Njaku, he does have some power, but he's going to have to rely on keeping the fight standing, waiting for Marquez to get a little bit tired so he's not clinching him the entire time, then knock him out. That's an over one and a half. Marquez has his way. He's dragging this thing to the ground. He's making this a slog, and uh, he, he could definitely grind out a decision. Or if he does happen to spring the submission victory, still the over one and a half. Minus 170, we're going to have a look at that. Uh, I'd like the Moicano Herbert at minus 145, but I know Locke's got that one. I'm going to take the minus 170 other side of that. Now we got to go into our plus money plays. we got rounding Barcellos by decision, plus 130. Again, you guys all know how big of a fan of Barcellos I am. Uh, I think he can just, wherever he needs to take this fight in order to be victorious, he's able to do so. And and against a guy that's very dangerous in Timor value, of, you know, strike when you need to. But same thing as the side in your Magomedov fight. 
hurt his leg, slow him down, stand in front of him, get him to think that this is a striking match, and then dump him. That's where you're going to have your best success. He's got an excellent back take on him as well. Barcelos for decision plus 130. And then, hey, let's go for it. I know I keep saying I want to go three for three, but I'm going to get there the good way. I'm going to get there the hard way. I'm going to hit a 250 to cap things off. And that's a Bozer by KO or TKO, of course, plus 250. Again, uh, I, I've watched Bozer for a very long time. I offered him a fight, actually, Todd Stout, way back in the day at oh, 205. Wow. Really? Yeah, Bo- yeah, no, no. And Bozer was fighting at 205. He had one fight at 205 pounds. I offered him the fight, and he said, uh, sorry, I'm going to school to be a firefighter. I don't think I'm going to pursue MMA. Yeah, yeah, and ends up being becoming a fucking UFC was that for, uh Was that for SEC or? It was, absolutely, yeah. Holy yeah. shit. I know, so a long time ago now. It would have been like 2014. I think the anniversary of the show actually just passed up. Yeah. Uh, but it, yeah, yeah, like I've been following him for a very long time. Uh, he's not he's not a potent finisher, but styles do make fights. You have seen that he's coming a long way. He is the bigger naturally set guy. And with OSP, it's a lot of narrative. He's 38. He's a 205 that's ballooned up a little bit. He's got these reoccurring injuries. He's a lot slower than he needs to be. He's coming off a loss to John Mahal Hill. And even though John Mahal Hill's a banger and a tough guy, He's still not a 250-pound man, so like Bozer is going to have equal amount of power punching, and uh, I really think that he's going to be able to use the leg kicks, slow this guy down, immobilize him, and that's when the chip on the shoulder is going to come out. That's when Bozer is going to be like, you know what? I'm sick of getting robbed by the judges. I'm going to put some pressure on this guy and put him away. Latifi, second round, if Latifi's not able to bail out those uh, those desperation takedowns, do you think he was going to take seven more minutes of that beating? No, no. The takedowns resulted in... The fight hits the ground. Bozer doesn't really have a game off his back. If OSP was to get him on his back, we would have a big problem. But just 205 guy against heavyweight, I don't quite see in it. So even though he's a decision guy, and I do agree with that assessment, I think that the power punching is going to be enough against a guy like OSP to take him out. And at plus 250, I'm willing to find out. I will say that Tanner Bozer going on this split decision loss streak is kind of reminding me of when Jesse Ronson first came to the UFC, <laughs> lost three straight split decisions, and then gets cut, and then finally on his return, finally gets that first dub inside the UFC. So I don't know what it is with Canadians and split decisions, but that's fair. That's fair. However, Brian Bochamp and we are friends, so please, I hope he's not watching this show, but I have to, I have to call him out on this one. Uh, dude's a badass judo black belt and BJJ black belt. He, he's credible, right? Yep. The fact that he scored Jesse Ronson beating Kevin Lee would have to be one of the worst things <laughs> I've ever seen of any judge. Yeah, I don't think he ever really judged again. And I, I, in my mind, they said, give me your judging card, pal. You're fucking done in this town. And they cut it up. I don't think it works like that, right? I don't think you got a judging <laughs> that's card. That's how you're hoping it works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that's what should have happened. Yeah. In fact, if I was the commission head, I would have been like, give me your judging card, pal. You'll never work in my city again. And when he was just like, fuck you talking about at least i know deep down i got my point across because yeah. and and by the way it's not just like oh dude it was one he looked away one time and and yeah. didn't real it's like no, no no he had some questionable decisions you can bring up his uh his record but he does not judge anymore thankfully he competes and he's a much better competitor uh so jesse ronson does have those three split decisions and they still cut him it was like yeah he didn't actually win any of those three the one judge pretty much in all three but especially the leaf fight was like they're looking at something way off. But yeah, talk about a terrible run, eh? You're 0-3 in the UFC. Split Look decisions. at the names, dude. Like, like Tough guys, uh, whole way. Who is it? Uh, Prezeris, Trinaldo, and Kevin Lee. Back to back to back, and then gets cut. Like, poor guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and then run. and then back back in the UFC, right? They're like, yeah. would you like would you like a short notice fight at 170 pounds? And he comes in as like a three to one underdog, springs the upset, first win in the UFC, game changer, finally gets paid. He got a bonus as well, fifty thousand so. dollars. 
Whoa, and then boom, to your suspension, USADA, on the juice. You got to give your okay. bonus money back. Here you go, $50,000, gone. I remember I talked to Tristan Connolly after he beat uh, Michelle Pereira. So he got fight of the night, and then Pereira missed weight. So he got Pereira's fight of the night oh, money yeah. too. So he got $100,000 for the fight. And uh, he was like, uh, you don't get your bonus until your uh, your test comes back yeah. clean. He's like, and, and it, I, was, it was the worst two weeks of my life. He was yeah. looking at all the supplements like, please, God. Uh, that but, happened with... Yeah, uh, so, that happened with Pat Healy as well, right? Didn't he beat like yeah, Jim Miller and had, Jim Miller smoked, smoked weed and and lost that hundred thousand uh, bonus as well? So yeah, please, guys. He won. He won. I think he got fifty thousand for fight of the night, and he got fifty thousand for submission of the night, right? Yeah. So uh, so as a result, it was like Jim Miller got the hundred thousand dollars because no, he got your Brian no, Fairway got it. Didn't it? Brian, Brian Caraway, Brian Caraway got the fifty for the submission of the night ah, party. Thing. So J- Jim got his fifty thousand for his fight of the night. Caraway got his fifty thousand for the submission of the night. And Pat Healy, a legend of the sport, a guy that's bled in the ring, fought all the monster. best guys, monster, biggest lightweight you've ever seen. One of my personal all-time favorites. Not yeah. so much his twin brother Ryan. I never really got behind him, but he was Pat, all right. He was all right. He was no Pat Bam Bam Healy. Uh, my, my guy and that that fucking ruined him dude that's a down payment on a house that's like life-changing money absolutely because because sure. he smoked a little ganja it was his yeah. debut too and then after that they were like oh well fight khabib it's like what <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing I mean, like was this? in toronto too if i'm not so mistaken dirty why did they do my boy pat dirty like that that's like all right uh we'll, we'll wrap this thing up cody i know you got a couple of things that you want to record after this but i will quickly give you the platform here if you want to say anything on the way out and then i'll wrap this thing up yeah, so basically, you guys know on Twitter at CJ Safdie. If you're not a person that's on Twitter, because I'm realizing now, not everybody wants to be on Twitter. No, <laughs> uh, hit me up on YouTube. Go to YouTube. Check out my channel at CJ MMA. I guess there's no acts. We're not on Twitter anymore. So just CJ MMA. Pretty straightforward. And yeah, I'm like grinding to that a thousand subscribers. That's the number I want to get to before I can start releasing some cool stuff. Start making these shows look a little bit better, graphics and all that jazz. So uh, if, if you're already subscribed, thank you so much. I really do appreciate the support. If you've never heard of it until just now, you've got a minute on your hand, why not go over there and hit subscribe? Um, all the support, I do appreciate as always. And uh, yeah, hopefully we get things going this week. I'd love to hit that three for three. As far as last week goes, straight up picks, no good. Prop show did save us. This week I'm open to have good straight up picks and good props as well. Let's tie this entire weekend together. There you go. And if you guys want a little bit more ease in terms of uh, subscribing to Cody's channel, link is in the description below. So make sure you guys hit that shit, then hit that subscribe. He's currently sitting at 824 subscribers. He is also close to that damn thousand mark. Uh, and I'm sure we can get him there, hopefully by the end of July. I'm sure it'll be a lot sooner than that. He actually does have a Bellator 261 preview up and available for you guys right now. And then uh, uh, after this show, I believe he's going to be recording his PFL breakdown. And that should be up later this evening as well. So ton of content coming from CJ Safdick. So make sure you guys go check that out on my end. I'm going to be busy as well tomorrow. I'm going to be doing a live weigh-in show as well as the weigh-ins are going down. Then uh, at night, 9 p.m. Eastern, the ultimate weigh-in show, like I said, with the cast that I have uh, announced a little bit earlier in the show. And yeah, appreciate you guys always checking out the show, supporting as always. Appreciate the dono for my guy, Tajik Bay, uh, pretty much fueling the show over here. Uh, and uh, yeah, good luck on your bets uh, tomorrow. And we'll see you guys. Actually, no event next week. No event next week. So we got a bye week next week, but we are back for UFC 264. Big, big event. July 10th, uh, Conor McGregor, Dustin Poirier 3, Wonderboy Thompson against Gilbert Burns. I can't wait for that card, and I can't wait to break it down with Cody from a props perspective. So we'll see you guys that following week for another edition of Propping You Up. All right, good luck on your best this weekend, and we'll see you guys in two weeks.